the Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. My man, thank you, sir. Steve Volk, thank you very much, man. Thanks hey, for thank coming you for down having here. Me. Yeah. Um, Fringeology is your book, and dude, when when uh, Matt Staggs, our uh, publicist, uh, uh, requested you or uh, suggested you, I was so all over this because this is like so right in my wheelhouse of shit that I enjoy, um, bullshit and stuff that might right. not be bullshit, you right. know. And there's a lot of both going around. Right. There's a lot of bullshit, folks. Don't get me wrong, but it's not all bullshit. There's some. There's some weird shit out there in the world, and uh, is that me? How dare I? I? I made a beep off my phone. But there's a lot of people that almost immediately discount anything fringe, whether it's psychics or whether it's, uh, you know, I've gotten angry people over the last couple of weeks, like angry emails and angry tweets because I suggested that something might be going on when you think about someone and the phone calls, uh, the phone rings, and it's them. And the people are like, oh, you're attaching that to it. This is a person you think about all day. Like Sam Harris had some very logical yeah. points. And I agree with him, absolutely, for the most part. But there are specific isolated instances where you feel something and then something happens, where you know someone's looking at you. Yeah. Rupert Sheldrake did a, uh, a controlled study in which he had people list four people who were you know, just present in their lives, somebody who might, in fact, call them. And then for, I forget how long a period, it was a week or two weeks, something like that. Um, they were supposed to, any time the phone rang, before they answered it, think of which of these four people it was. And um, they thought of the correct person uh, more at a rate higher than chance, significantly higher than chance. And I don't have all those, the, the, the numbers in my head right now, but it ended up being a statistically significant effect, right? So instead of being uh, right when it was one of those four people, one out of four times, they were right far more often. Wow, that's interesting. And, that's, yeah. Well, is that because they knew that this one motherfucker just calls me all the time and he's money in the bank? I'm going to prove some psychics. <laughs> It's just one. What if one guy just fucking calls you all day? You're like I know it's Marty, and you pick it up, and it's Marty because Marty calls you all day. I suppose it could be. Could be. But they had they had so many people mm. involved in the study that it would seem to uh, be what it was a statistically significant effect. In writing a book, though, do you start looking for fuckery in studies like that? And because you know, oh, of course, your 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 purpose initially was kind of to, to disprove a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I have to tell you, the chapter on telepathy in particular scared the hell out of me because I had gotten so used to hearing the skeptical line: "There's no evidence. There's no evidence. There's no evidence." That I really expected to find no evidence. Right. Yeah. And um, when I realized I was going to have to hang my ass out on the line and say, you know what, there's actually some evidence. Uh, it was scary. That was scary. Was it scary because you thought, like, intellectually you'd be criticized and you'd be marginalized? Sure. I thought I'd be ostracized within the profession of journalism, you know, for saying really? this. But the fact is there's, there's a really high-level debate going on between really smart people about the proper way to slice and dice these studies in terms of analyzing the statistics that are generated. And we can't, at this point, really be sure whether or not um, psi, as they put it, is, that's the whole field of telepathy, whether or not psi exists. But there's, there's a lot of really strong evidence that would suggest it does. And I, and I mentioned this in my book. A couple of the leading skeptics, Chris French, uh, Richard Wiseman, have both allowed that by the standards of any ordinary science, telepathy is proven, right? Uh, 
so if, if they were just judging kind of a pharmaceutical and looking at the same sorts of numbers that these guys are, are generating, um, they would say, okay, something's happening here, right? There's, a, there's an effect. But because it's a, quote, extraordinary claim, uh, we don't understand the physics of this, what the mechanism would be that would allow for telepathy, we need greater evidence. And well, when you say that it's been proven, how so? Well, these, again, this is Wiseman in French who I'm quoting, mm -hmm. but they would say that, like, say something like uh, the Gansfield uh, test, if you're familiar with that. No, what is that? Okay, the Gansfield test, um, they'll have, uh, the, the, there's many different ways to set it up, right? But one of the ways to set it up is you've got a person who is the, um, uh, one of the sub test subjects has halved ping pong balls put over their eyes, right? Um, they have white noise being pumped into their ears, and they're put into a very comfortable chair where they're just sort of kind of suspended. So there's very, very little input into uh, the system at that point. And they're the receiver, right? And they're in a soundproof room, so they're getting no normal input whatsoever, but they're supposed to just kind of go within, right? Listen to themselves, what thoughts occur to them, and start reporting back on what it is that they're seeing in their mind's eye, hearing in their mind, that kind of thing. And in another room, uh, the sender is actually, they're in a soundproof room too, locked away from, from the receiver. They're looking at some sort of stimulus. They're looking at an image on a computer, um, perhaps, or you know, photos in front of them. And um, they are trying to send that image to the person in the other room who they may or may not know, depending on the study. And then there are, in, there are four target images that are then presented, usually in the best studies, that an impartial judge will um, look at a transcript of what the receiver said, right? And then they'll have four images in front of them, one of which was the target that the sender was actually trying to mentally send to the receiver. And you would expect that if the person with you know, the ping pong balls over their eyes got absolutely nothing, then the judge would select the correct image one out of four times. But instead, you do enough trials, and the meta-analyses on these, when they crunch all the numbers from all the studies together, shows more like a 32% effect. Instead of being right one out of four times, they're right 32% of the time. And this, Wiseman and French would allow that these studies are you know, generally well controlled enough that if this was an ordinary claim that was being presented, uh, this, was, this is fine and we would accept this as evidence that something's up here, some mm -hmm. kind of information transfer. The problem is, because we don't understand the physics of how this would work, they say we need greater evidence than this. And they keep asking for greater and greater levels of scientific controls to be put on the studies and they keep um, just finding ways to kind of re reject the result. I've never been skeptical of the potential for psychic phenomenon, mm -hmm. but I've been very skeptical about almost every story that I've ever heard. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of fakers. I've met a lot of fake psychics. I've sure. met a lot of crazy girls that want to tell you they're like clairvoyant, you know, mm -hmm. and people who are channelers. And just there's so many Looney Tunes that are connected to it. But a 32% increase sounds to me like probably what's real. It's that. I think that Isn't human that like average though. Wouldn't you think that would be about average if you were to do the same study with without having somebody trying to you know just the person. Well, yeah, guessing. but it's twenty five percent without it. Twenty five percent to thirty two percent. That's uh, the idea. So it's yeah. a small leap. It's a seven. Yeah, 
whatever it is. Seven percent jump, seven percent jump chance. Yeah, but what's what's interested in that seven percent? I mean, if it's really statistically real, if the study hasn't been fucked with, the um, the idea is that it's just a little bit. Just a little bit. The idea is that there's this weak signal that we're not yeah. normally picking up on, especially look at the way we live now, where we're constantly, constantly being bombarded by information and input and just stimulus. Yeah. But when you shut all that out and you close your eyes and, and you don't have any sound that distracts you, what's there? Are you receiving any kind of accurate information? And I'm, I, I found the research really tantalizing, and I also, like I said, I found it scary because I thought, well, here I am now. I'm going to write that, you know what? When they tell you there's no evidence, that's kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. There's, there's, in fact, there, there is some evidence, and the question is whether or not it's risen to the level yet where we have to accept it. Right. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a fascinating possibility that I think is inevitable. I think it's inevitable either technologically yeah. or it's inevitable due to our own bodies advancing and changing and, and mutation. Because I feel like if you look at lower primates and, you know, they're, they have a very rudimentary language. They think that chimps repeat certain sounds and they me might mean certain things. But it's nowhere near what we can do. And I've got to assume that this isn't the end. I mean, this isn't the last version of the ape. You know, if, if apes are going to continue to be successful, right. this model's not going to stick around forever. And you could look at this one of two ways. In one way, maybe we're evolving the ability, yeah. right? Another way, maybe we're losing it, right? So back in the day when we were, you mentioned before the sense of being stared at. Mm -hmm. There's been some really good research on this. Again, one of the skeptics I mentioned, Richard Wiseman, did a, did a study with a woman named Marilyn Schlitz where they collaborated and they did three separate studies trying to figure out whether or not somebody could sense that someone was staring at the back of their head. Yeah. And um, they had real nice controls on it. Wiseman was part of uh, you know, the experiment. Two out of the three times they did it, they, they got, a, again, a statistically significant effect where people were right of, you know, far more often than chance would have suggested. And if you think of it in a, an evolutionary sense, which I, I do in the book, right, is, is that Back in the day when we were being hunted all the time, right, when we didn't have the kinds of uh, fortifications we have now against the angry packs of wolves that are out there, and, and uh, we would have needed to have this ability to know that we're being stared at. You know, we would have, yeah. it would have helped us survive as a species. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense, especially, you know, when you consider there's got to be, like, some pretty intense focus when a predator locks on you. Mm-hmm. You know, and that mm -hmm. if there is some sort of a psychic bond out there between entities, sure. like the feeling like this motherfucker is about to eat me. That's when it like, should freaking kick in, right? Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if it does, you know. I wonder if they can feel it. You know, I think the, that there's probably a lot of senses that we lost in our separation from the, the natural world to here. Just intuitive senses. The Army has done some research on um, intuition, really. And, and who their most intuit intuitive people are. And it's the kind of, these people are the ones that they'll sort of look at to um, notice when there's a hidden explosive device on, right. on the ground in Iraq. Right? And they found that, that two, two groups in particular, I think there was a third, but there's two that I always remember, <laughs> that, that are really good at this. Um, hunters and uh, people from the inner city. Really? And... So suburban milky people are fucking useless. Apparently. So <laughs> I knew if, it. I knew that was the problem. Think, think about it from the point of view of the person in the inner city. They've got to be aware of their entire env environment and the potential for danger. 
and they've got to get used to honoring that impulse that something's a little off here. Mm-hmm. I need to respect that, you know? Right. In order to stay alive. Yeah. And so the people who are best at finding these hidden explosive devices just can tell that something just feels off in this area, and then they start focusing in on what. Really? Well, I didn't know, first of all, that the Army actually used intuitive people to try to find bombs. Keep, keep in mind, this is not about um, psychic ability, right? I, I, at least they're not talking about it in that context. What you know, the Army has done remote viewing uh, uh, research and all that stuff in the past. But, yeah. you know, this is, this is a very straightforward intuition. You uh-huh. can, somebody who can just very, very aware of their surroundings, very aware of what's around them, and alert to something that just seems wrong in the environment. That's not necessarily psychic at all. Huh. Um, but it's real, and it, and it, but it harkens back to that a little bit, that idea. It kind of is psychic, though. I mean, the well, idea exactly. that you can just have some spidey sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that they're, I think they're towing the line. You know, I think they're towing the line. They're right up on that line where spidey sense and talk of spidey sense is, is right where we should be. But the language they're using is is clearly very, um, you know, hardcore. Have police? Side. This is something that I've always wanted to ask someone like you. Have police really used psychics to find victims or any of that stuff? Has any of that stuff ever really panned out? I, I've actually done a lot of uh, police reporting in my past, as well as you know this book. I mean, it's kind of generally I, I read about cops, crime, courts, politics, that kind of thing. And I've spent a lot of time with cops. And there's one homicide detective I know who absolutely just, and he's actually a religious guy, which is sort of interesting. He hates psychics. <laughs> they, have, they have led him on so many, or tried to lead him on so many wild goose chases. They screw with him when he's in the middle of a tough homicide investigation. He's getting phone calls. Sometimes one of his higher-ups will be, maybe you ought to listen, maybe you ought to hear this out. You know, he cannot stand them but I recently met and I've really I've got to follow up with this guy um, and I haven't yet but I met a retired homicide detective who told me he wanted to talk to me because he has worked with a psychic who gave him good actionable information on multiple occasions really and I haven't had a chance to to sit down with that guy yet and I bet he was boning her I bet he was boning her <laughs> trying to promote her business I know how that works that's what he was doing man he's an old guy I'm not sure he's boning hey, anybody he's got to do what he's got to do yeah you know, Chick's got a psychic business. It's tough <laughs> to keep the lights on this day and age. I've always wanted to know. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about it, but everybody that I've heard talk about it hasn't researched it. You know, it hasn't. It's not. Everybody wants to say, you know, psych, they've used psychics to find bodies. I'm like, have they? Have they really? I don't know if they have. You know what, Joe? There's a couple of cases that are still sort of tantalizing out there that would maybe something happened. You know, maybe they did uh-huh. get actual information, but for the most part, if you even watch the Psychic Investigators show, what's really sort of funny about it is that even when they're saying, you know, that, that this information was so valuable, usually if you're really paying attention, it's not actually the information that broke the case. It's, it's information that after the fact seemed to fit. And um, so I'm still, you know, I'm still, well, I'm still skeptical of and everything, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm skeptical of the psychics helping detectives. But yeah. I'm really open to it because, again, if this, if there is this sort of weak signal out there, you know, that occasionally we pick up on, well, then maybe sometimes it provides actionable information. Do you remember the Psychic Friends Network? Yep. Do you remember Warwick. that show? Was it Dion Warwick? Dion Warwick. Yeah. And then Dion Warwick got caught with weed at the airport. That's what made her psychic. Yeah, that's what was making her psychic. <laughs> it wasn't these assholes she was working with. No. When you, I think when you smoke pot, you get a little more psychic. There you make, I do. make that a quote. Go ahead. <laughs> I agree. Use that to discredit me. 
take it in context, though. I, I think you you become super sensitive, and in in that that like you become very aware if people are creepy, very aware if people are angry, very aware of weird tension. You know, it makes you like really sensitive. It makes you really aware of bad acting too. It's tough to get high and watch some bad acting. You're like, yeah. whoa, you're fucking faking it. And that is sort of like what, what acting really is, is the, the best actors can lock into a role so deeply that they almost must believe it in themselves because they're convincing you, even though you know it's Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, you, you know he's not really uh, an Irish boxer. Right. Right. You believe it because right. he's, he's tricked you. He's, he's bypassed all of your psychic energy. But when you're high and you watch someone faking the funk, just going through the, you're like, oh, what are you doing up there? Like you see them acting, it's just, ugh, it's disgusting. It'd be interesting to watch early and later De Niro in that context. Yeah, <laughs> you're so right. Is there ever a guy who's fallen so far from oh, grace? It's so man. sad. Yeah. Meet the fuckers, really? Yeah. Two, fuck you, two, whatever the <laughs> number two was. <laughs> little fuckers. We fucked you again. Those little fuckers are bad. I mean, I'm not even saying that that's a bad movie, but it's just like, that's Robert that's motherfucking De Niro, De Niro yeah. you know? And he's doing some new movie now with Alan Ar Aldo, where they get in a fight with each other, or Alan Arkin, rather. It's just like, he was in that, that movie where he played like a wizard and shit. Yeah. I see this one. Oh, my God. What was the movie where Robert De Niro played like a wizard? A wizard. It was like a really bad, like, The Hobbit-type movie. It looks so stupid. I was like, Robert, what is going on? I guess after a while, you're like, fuck it. I did my time. I, I did my good fellas. I did my Raging Bulls. I'm just, I'm from just here on. Cash it in and have some fun. Yeah. Think about what he did for Cape Fear and he, the way he bulked oh, up. Oh, my or God. He was fucking incredible. Put on weight for uh, Raging Bull. I mean, you know, too much sacrifice. He's a taxi driver. He's a tr just a fucking tremendous actor. Just in his prime, in his youth, he was just unstoppable. The Deer Hunter, I mean, my God, that was a fucking movie. He did some incredible, incredible shit. But the stuff he's doing now... Sad, sad to see, man. It's fucked. I'm sure he's, he's yeah feeling really sad right now. Getting that. I bet he is. I bet he is. Job. I bet he's not as ha nearly as happy as he was during the Raging Bull days when he was just creating something fucking magnificent. You know. You know I think Tiffy got into with Jay Z. What? Robert De Niro got in a tiff with Jay Z? Yeah. Jesus Christ! How is that possible? He was apparently uh, trying to phone Jay Z to talk about some sort of entertainment event that was going on, and Jay Z didn't call him back. And so De Niro, in public, kind of dressed him down for it. What? Yeah, and I thought, that's a little much. You know? I wonder if that was his Jay-Z's kind of busy, too, you if know? If Bobby De Niro calls you, you call him back. Well, how about maybe he didn't really know it was you? You know? If, if it's Bobby, Bobby De Niro. Or what if he got the Ho phone number or something and yeah. he never checked it? Or what if Jay-Z went to see that wizard movie and was like, what the fuck, Bobby De Niro? What you doing, son? You <laughs> owe me 20 bucks. Or what if just hanging out with Robert De Niro was just uncomfortable for a, a pot yeah. smoker? Like if you like you just wanted to hang out all the time, like God, fucking Robert De Niro's coming over. <laughs> yeah, what Again. if he's too Again. intense? And what if he's like studying you? Yeah, you know, like and, as, and he wants to drink wine with you and as stuff. As a character actor, he's studying you, thinking if he could play you in a movie. <laughs> Starts rubbing your feet. And Bobby De Niro <laughs> as Brian Redband. Redband in the we'll future. That would be him. Robert De Niro as Redband in the future. It's you in like fifty years, and you still. You, you would know, probably do that role. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're still partying it up. 
still talking like you're 12. Yeah, I'll do it. But now it's creepy because you're like almost 60, and everybody's like, what the fuck? Is he going to grow up? Nope. He's not growing up. It's Bobby De Niro as Red Band in his 60s. That's a good idea for a movie. It is. <laughs> no, it's not. Somebody don't make that. <laughs> so what, what subject did you get started with? What led you to just pursue this, uh, the, um, the, the storyline in this book or the idea line in this book of just chasing down all things fringe? There were a couple things that, um, that motivated me. Um, one of them was a family ghost story I grew up with as a kid. Um, where supposedly our house... These are my red band notes, by the way. I noticed you're noticing this. I'm, a, I'm an avid listener to the show, and I know he might say totally random shit that will totally distract me. And if he does, <laughs> oh. I want to be able to take a note on where I was. It's a good move. That's good call. Sorry, I brought you a pen do. and paper. We should, ha- we should have that. for you, you fuck. We should have that for the guest. <laughs> yeah. Captain Flow Wrecker. So I um. I, I grew up with a, a ghost story, a, a ghost that was supposedly in my house. This stuff happened when I was five or six years old, so I have very fragmented memories of it. But it was a, um, a it really sort of starts with the cliche. Uh, it was a thing that went bump in the night. Only it bumped, it thudded, it boomed. Uh, it happened only at night. Uh, it would go on for tens of minutes at a time. It sounded like it was coming from somewhere upstairs. So my parents on the first floor thought it was on the roof of the house. My brother and I on one side of the house thought it was on the roof over our heads. My sisters in their room who did not share an adjoining wall uh, with us thought it was on uh, the roof and or in there up high in the walls. And um, at first that's what it was. It was this noise, but it was so loud it would wake everybody up and it would go on for a while. And my parents hunted for uh, prosaic explanations, um, didn't fit with like a water hammer or anything with the plumbing, didn't fit with the house settling because of how long it went on. Did you have an attic or was it just a roof? No attic. No attic. And um, my sister started reporting stranger things. It's really movie shit, right? They started reporting that um, their bed frames would shake in the middle of the night and wake them up. They claimed that they saw a woman walk right through the room, um, you know, literally a ghost, right? My parents, and I find this really important, my parents set that aside and discounted it uh, for a couple of reasons. It was coming from kids, and who would want to believe that that's true? I mean, I think one of the things the skeptics always do is say, you know, it's sort of wishful thinking and superstition, that people hear a noise and they leap to ghost. But my family didn't, and so they spent nine months or a year trying to recreate the noise in various ways, um, trying to figure out what it was. And when my sisters would tell these crazy stories, they were just kind of like, number one, they didn't want to believe it. Who wants to believe your daughters are being terrorized at night, right? right. There's something going on in their room. But finally, and I was raised Catholic. Um, we hadn't fallen out of the church yet. That was still coming. But um, my dad went to the family priest. And he told him what was going on because he'd run out of other answers. And the priest said, you know, usually in cases like this, which I always find that language interesting as well because it implies he does this on a fairly regular basis, usually in cases like this, I come over and I bless the house. So he came over, and I, I remember this vividly because to have Father Crowley come into the, uh, come into the, the house with the vestments on and swinging, um, like, the incense around and praying in Latin was intense, right, as a kid. Um, I was like six. He was he was God himself, you know, standing up on that pulpit. And he comes in our house. He's swinging the incense around. And when he leaves, and he says to my dad, uh, "So long, Jerry. I'm sure everything will be fine." 
But that night, actually, things got worse. The booming went on longer and louder than ever before, and for the first time, it seemed to locate in a specific spot. So instead of coming from this sort of amorphous uh, area somewhere up on the roof, it hits at the top of the stairs, uh, the landing, and then it came downstairs, like one step at a time. My father said it sounded like a kid throwing a tantrum. And when it hit the bottom uh, floor, um, they could feel the floor shake under their feet, my parents, and we never heard it again. And so I grow up with this story, and I think of it as, you know, for a long time, all the way through adolescence, it was just sort of a, um, I don't know, man, an article of faith. Like, I didn't even question it. it. It just was. But, you know, you get into college then, and you start meeting other people, and you start getting familiar with critical thinking, and you're like, what the hell was that? You know, what the hell was that? That's not... That's, How old were you when this was going on? I was about six. And so whatever memories mm -hmm. I have it are very fragmentary. But I, I got to tell you, Joe, when I asked my parents about it for the book, and I actually interviewed them, I knew someday I was going to write about this, right? I interviewed them many years before I, I really settled on this is the book I'm going to write. And I actually sat them down and I recorded it. And I will never forget when they were describing that last night when it came down the stairs... They turned white. They held hands across the table. They were still frightened just by the memory of it. So for them, whatever it was, was tremendously real. And I wanted to explore that and see, well, could there have been anything uh, strange there? Could they have possibly somehow, and, and my brothers and sisters too, could we all have somehow imagined all this? And so that was part of my inspiration for the book. What is your conclusion on that? Do you, do you look back? I mean, I, I don't remember anything that happened when I was six that I can tell you reliably what really happened. I have, you know, just a few that's images. And sure, sure. And that's true of, of uh, generally of, of, of people. I mean, yeah. I, it's very hard to trust childhood memories. I'm not sure I should trust my own memories of that event. That's another thing that sort of uh, kind of disassociates me from it. Yeah. You know, it makes how, it how hard to... Now? Yeah. 43. Yeah, when you look back at six, I mean, how much do you really... How much do you remember of sex? I, you know, I actually have a creepy amount of memories from my childhood. Yeah? But are they legit? Well, that's know? the question. I've got a bunch, I mean, too, but I don't P know how legit they Piaget are. Piaget did this oh, uh, great uh, psychologist, child psychologist, uh, did a lot of studies on this. And one of the things he pointed out is in his own life, he, he had this very vivid memory of being kidnapped because he was told he was kidnapped. And then years later, the person who was supposedly the witness to the kidnapping admitted that they made the story up. Whoa. And so he had this really shocking, vivid memory through his whole life. I forget at what point it was revealed to him oh and it wasn't God. true. So that's how much we can be deceived by these things. And you asked the conclusion I came to, and, and I think it's a very healthy conclusion. The conclusion I came to is I don't know what the fuck happened, right? Mm -hmm. And it, 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 there's still mystery there. None of the normal prosaic explanations work for me, right? It, it was not a water hammer, it's not it a was, rat. It was not, no, it was not a rat making a noise that big. It was not a, a, a plumbing problem, you know? It was not the house settling. Uh, so and was, I've had this skeptics. Is, it was, do you remember it being really loud? Really loud. Like, really loud. Like, someone slamming a door or something like that? Yeah, at its loudest, like a sledgehammer getting, getting uh, willed on really? the roof. At its loudest. And yeah. so you go outside and there's no one on the roof. Yeah, funny story there. My, my parents, because I, so, I was so young... And I remember this, this one I know this memory is true. I remember them taking me outside at night because we were scared to show me, show me that there were raccoons jumping on the roof because it, it was nighttime and this was the story they gave their little kid. Oh, honey, it's just raccoons jumping up and down on the roof. 
And hmm. I was young enough that I was like, okay, raccoons sometimes jump up and down on the roof. <laughs> well, they do, though. Like, I mean, if they, especially if they're fucking, you know, mm-hmm. girls will fight back and you get some gangster shit going on. Gangster raccoons? Yeah. Yeah, yeah throwing down, down on your roof. Yeah, not enough of them. It was that and loud. Too many nights, yeah. yeah. And too wow. many nights, man. I mean, tens of minutes at a time, raccoons are just bouncing up and down on the roof. Imagine if your roof was like the octagon for the ultimate fighting championship for raccoons. <laughs> While you're sleeping, that would be noise. Duke it out in the middle sure. of the night. Then you open the door and they just get ghosts. They just climb up the trees and hide. <laughs> they're, cl- they're crafty, those fucking raccoons. I would have set up cameras everywhere. I would have yeah. figured that shit out day long, two. Long time ago, though. Yeah, yeah. I would. I would I'd be when doing he was everything. Six. In 1975, for me. in 1975, we weren't walking around with these HD cameras with yeah. night vision. Well, that I'd get courtroom sketch artists <laughs> and just put them on every corner of the house courtroom sketch is that the dumbest thing ever that they still have to use someone to sketch what's happening you can't take a picture it's the beauty of it what does that mean it's like we're not supposed to be able to see inside the sacred courtroom where the decisions are being rendered so instead here's an artist's depiction of the act the fuck are you showing me drawings for yeah you know, you can show it to me or you can't. Is that a, the, a real guy at a table? That's what he looks like? That's the drawing represents what he looks like, right? Show me a fucking picture, stupid. A what flash. kind of game are we playing? A flash would be distracting. Is that what it is? Yeah. How about no flashes? Yeah. It seems pretty easy to just do no flashes, yeah. you know? It's shutter clicks. It'd be even weirder if someone's fucking staring at you and drawing you. <laughs> That's even weirder, man. Imagine, you know, you're talking about your, your experience and trying to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but, and some fucking weirdo's eyeballing you and drawing your face. That's got to be a little mindfuck. Yeah, it would be. Probably affects your decision-making skills when you're in court. Actually, it's fucking true. If the, if the cameras are a lot easier to handle than if somebody was sitting here yeah. drawing. Yeah, some asshole using outdated technology. Like could be he taking here license. on a horse? He could be taking license with my image, too. Yeah, he got there on a horse. All his books are written in script. We have courtroom sketch room artists for that show that I do. Like they have, we, they draw during the whole con- uh, live podcast, the secret show thing. That's hilarious. See, like here's Ari. But think, think about that's a good thing. idea. And then we sell it, and the artist gets all the money. No, that's a good idea. That's a way better idea than using it in court. See, <laughs> we found a new use for those people. Yeah. They don't have to do that anymore. Think about this too, though. So as the years went on, and I would share that story, I, I stopped sharing it, right? Because I was starting to run into more and more people who were. Uh, totally adamantly opposed, not not only opposed to the idea of ghosts, I'm pretty suspicious about the idea of ghosts, right? They were adamantly opposed to the idea that, that there was even a mystery there. And so that's kind of what I hold out for in the book, that sometimes we just need to be able to admit, I, I just say the words I don't know what happened. People want to rush to some kind of conclusion, whether they have enough evidence or data or not. And I ran into people over the years who would insist it had to be a water hammer, even though it doesn't fit uh, you know, the story at all. What is a water hammer? That's when the water Pressure goes dunk, 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 dunk. Like it yeah. has that crazy noise that yeah. it makes. That yeah. I, I, when I used to live in an apartment building, you heard that a lot. Yeah, sudden flow of water stops, and then you get that sound because the energy the water build up is converted to acoustic energy because it's got to go somewhere. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, and oh, it, okay. and it doesn't it doesn't last that long, and it doesn't make that kind of noise, and it sounds like it doesn't sound like it's coming from your your roof for last tens of minutes. And it certainly never locates on the steps. But this is all <laughs> when you were six. Yeah, so, so in the end, you kind of have to trust, or, or not, right? That's the question you're left with. Do I trust my mother and father's account, my sister's account, my brother's account? And, you know, on some, le- on some level I do, but can I really buy into the idea that there are ghosts? I mean, so one of the things I explored, and I, 
and I found this really interesting. I mean, there are people out there working with um, sort of other uh, other technologies to determine if maybe there's an abundance of electromagnetic energy in the air in certain areas, then it fucks with your temporal lobe, and you have drilling. I mean, where, where was this at? It was in Pittsburgh. Maybe. And, and um, not a lot of fault lines, I don't think, there. Although there is occasional. There was that one in know, Ohio that they yeah, just found out there, that we're making the earthquakes. It happens some. It happens yeah. some. And um, a guy working with infrasound, uh, a guy named Vic Tandy did research on infrasound. It's a level of sound beneath even the range of human hearing, but it actually has an effect. It can create a sense of pressure and uneasiness in your chest. Uh, it actually can even impact uh, sort of the eyeball, the actual vibration in the air and cause you to see uh, cloudy shapes when there aren't any. I don't think any of those necessarily explain uh, what ha whatever happened in my house either. But what I like about it is at, le at least here somebody's thinking creatively and not thinking so poorly of their fellow human that they just, yeah, you heard a creaking floorboard and you jumped to a fucking ghost because you're that stupid and that's uh, superstitious. It, these sorts of explanations, I think, grant people the proper dignity to be, uh, that, that they're reporting things at least somewhat accurately, right? Something really unusual was happening. It's, um, it's a very unfortunate reality that we live in that I can't trust anybody to tell me sure. like what really happened. Sure. So when you, when a legitimate event, mm -hmm. if a legitimate event occurs, it's immediately dismissed. Sure. If you really looked at how many strange things exist, both in the natural world and in the uh, just the, just the the world of space, just the world of dark matter and supernovas, and all those things are way crazier than ghosts. Mm -hmm. Okay, a, a ghost ain't shit compared to the sun. The, you know the, what I mean? The idea that we're living in a multiverse, that there's yeah. an infinite number of us having this conversation right now. And the idea places. that life exists yeah. at all that you can see with yeah. eyeballs, you know, that is just as freaky as something that sure. used to live, but its essence in some form stays for yeah. some reason. Yeah. I think the idea that this dimension that we w live in is like, super concrete and, you know, just because you can hit it with a fucking bald fist and right. push it into a street right. and watch a car slam into mm -hmm. it. Well, you're dealing with real solid objects, and that's all there is here. I don't necessarily buy that. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in most of what I hear in terms of psychics and psychic mm -hmm. readings and ghost stories. I think most of it's bullshit. But I think it's very possible that something remains of you and that you're not just skin tissue and bone tissue and blood and more than meat. Yeah. There more might be meat. something going on and that something might leave your body and exist in some other state in almost an inaccessible environment. That's that's parallels us. Yeah. And that's not outside the realm of possibility. It sounds so woo woo, but it's not. It's not because life itself the the whole idea that your your body is uh, just this big chemical reaction and electromagnetic impulses and all that's crazy. Neuroscientists can't yet answer the basic question of how consciousness is produced. Right. right. So how we get from the physical stuff of the brain to non-physical subjective experience is a complete and total mystery. And yet it is the thing that really defines our lives, our internal experience of the world. And there's no explanation for it. And I like how scientists um, like get to what's, what part of the brain does what. Like this guy got an injury here, so that removes this part of the brain. That removes his ability to do this. He's got an injury here, so well now we know that this, this inhibits walking, and this is where you know, your eyesight is dealt with. But what they can't figure out is 
where's the thinking person with morals and ethics and love? Where is he in there? Is he just a crackling? Is he just the energy that makes all those cells fire? Where's she? Where's the girl who can, you know, who can in, in, enjoy the things that she enjoys and, and enjoy the food that she enjoys? Where, where's all that? And there's something else to consider, too, Joe, is that, okay, so we get these damage to our uh, brain and we'll lose certain faculties. Sometimes we only lose them for a certain time, right, because of neuroplasticity. These things come back online. And where, and, or other parts of the brain simply pick up those functions. Mm -hmm. And this is easier to do when you're younger than when you're older. But um, the thing that fascinates me are people who will lose their memory for a certain time, and then those memories begin to come back. And this is, uh, uh, again, a relatively common thing. Sure. How, how, how does that happen? Where were the memories stored? Where did they go when they were gone? It's a What's very that? good question. Yeah. And it's There's one that happens when people get concussions. Yeah. There's, uh, concussions cause uh, a great deal of short-term memory loss. It's how the, uh, I actually looked at this a little bit in the book. I mean, the doctors will assess um, how severe a person's injury was by uh, coming up with a degree of memory loss, like asking them, what's the last thing you remember before mm. the injury? What's the first thing you remember after the injury? And the, the longer the blank period, the more hurt you are. I, I looked at near-death experiences in the book, and that's, so that's one of the things that drew me in there, because what's, what's weird about these guys is that, and girls, is they oftentimes come back with a, a, f a f totally flowing memory of um, an event that should have knocked their memory producing capabilities offline for a certain amount of time, and, and yet somehow didn't seem to. Um, and and I'm, I'm okay with saying, like, like with a near-death experience, I take a lot of flack, really, from both sides, because believers will contact me and say they're upset that I won't come out and say that, you know, the near-death experience is smoking gun evidence that there's an afterlife. Uh, you know, I don't think it is smoking gun evidence that there's an afterlife, but I also don't think it's yet been explained. And and again, we, we end up back in this place where everybody wants to act like they know everything. Everybody wants to push everything to a conclusion. I think the most rational thing to say is we, we don't fully understand that experience yet. You know? The near-death experience, it has to be related to what your, your own brain can produce as far as psychedelic chemicals. It has to be. The, your own brain produces the most potent psychedelic drug known to man. And why wouldn't it produce that shit if you were going to die? If you're in high stress periods, if you're freaking, if it's this is the end, your body thinks this is it, we're going to die, and then it comes back. You know, you, you very likely could have come back from a psychedelic trip as well. Uh, let me tell you, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase, the, the best evidence that, that the NDE has to provide. Right? Okay. This is the best. Janice Minor Holden, uh, a researcher, did a study where she went through all the medical literature and all the research that's been done in NDEs so far. And she tabulated um, veridical perceptions, so accurate and true perceptions that people got while, quote, out of body. And what she came up with is that um, out of 38 cases in the medical literature where people were able to recount what was going on in the room when they were flatlined. Like see um, themselves above the table, yeah, like all that, that kind stuff, of stuff. Right. When they were in this sort of severe physical distress, 35 of them were accurate in every detail they reported. Two of them had minor errors, the sort of errors I'd have, you know, if I was trying to describe what I had for breakfast today. You know what I mean? I might miss something. And then one person was just totally off the freaking reservation, right? One person was just totally wrong about everything. And, um, but 35... What was, the, what was funny about his or her... Uh, you know what? I haven't, I haven't read all the details of what they said, but it, it, it was, I mean, it, they were just off on everything. They had no right. idea what machines were used. They had no idea how many people were in the room. So some no people were anything. incredibly accurate. 
35 of them were accurate. Out of how many folks? 38. Oh, my God. In their entirety. Now, the skeptical response to this is that the researchers themselves uh, quote, you know, would have suppressed information that wasn't accurate because they were so blown away by what they were hearing that they went ahead and um, only recorded sort of the positive responses because the negative ones weren't making any impact with them, weren't, weren't landing with them. And the other uh, uh, thing they'll propose is that, well, um, maybe... That's a pretty serious accusation. Why, why would they say that? Uh, did they have the questions and is all the, everything's been recorded, of course? Uh, you know, we'd have to go back through every last study to figure out what you know what right. research materials they had in every case. But I mean, that's just one one objection they lodge. Uh-huh. I mean, the other objection they lodge is that well, maybe uh, they had some sort of anesthesia awareness, right? The per- if the person was on anesthesia, sometimes you're still aware of what's going on in the room, um, so they'll they'll lob that one in there too, or they'll they'll say that um, uh, they they call it uh, per- perfusion of. Uh, uh, of blood to the brain, maybe they were getting cardiac massage, and that does supply a certain amount of uh, blood to your brain. So maybe uh, some part of the brain was still operating and able to retain a certain amount of information. But it just, it, it's, these are possibilities, these are ideas um, that maybe explain it, but 35 out of 38, that's, it, it, it's, it's remarkable, and it's enough to push it into that area where you have to say, you know, maybe something is going on here. I mean, do you ever feel in a psychedelic experience that you get accurate information, not just um, stuff that your mind is coming up with, but some sort of signal or contact with something that's, quote, real? Well, you believe that. Whether or not it's happening is the big debate. Right. You know, there's people that absolutely believe that they're in contact with entities. And there's other people that believe that you're just accessing the, the, the imagination and the mind is interfacing with distortion of its visual abilities in massive form. And you're putting context to that and trying to make, make like rational understanding yeah. of it. One of my favorite stories in the book, um, I, I, when I was researching the near-death experience, I looked pretty deeply into the story of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the book on death and dying which kind of galvanized the whole hospice movement and made end-of-life care in this country and really around the world a lot more humane. And she is one of the first people ever to encounter the near-death experience. And she did it before that phrase was even coined. I mean, it was Raymond Mooney wrote the book in 1975. She, in the 60s, was running across patients in the hospital wards. She was a psychologist who were telling these same kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And what I find really is a couple layers to this I'm going to get to, but what's really fascinating is she wanted to reject this stuff at first, completely. Um, her research partner, the Reverend Walamu Amara, who's a really terrific dude, I loved interviewing this guy, he's still around, um, he was a reverend and he had been appointed to sort of go along on the hospital wards with her. What she was doing was very controversial. Nobody talked to the terminally ill at that point. They were right. sort of shunted off to the side. And so the fact that she was doing this was was really angering a lot of the hospital staff. So the administration put this reverend with her as a way of saying, kind of giving her their blessing, as a way of saying she's, it's, she's not her alone, right? There's, there's somebody with her. And I would imagine Amara was pretty formidable. So nobody wanted to fuck with Reverend Amara. Right. Because anyway, I, I met the guy. He's awesome. But anyway, um, one of the early stories they encountered before they started even researching this experience, because they'd hear these stories and kind of blow them off because they didn't know what to do with them. Finally, um, he's out near the elevators one day. A woman goes into cardiac arrest. He, she's resuscitated right, right there in the hall. You know, they went to work on her. They resuscitated her. 
he goes to see her later and she starts describing the scene of what happened exactly. And she even describes that she was able, and this stuff sounds ridiculous, right? But she was able to float in at one point behind a um, resident who was taking notes because one of the things they did with, you know, if you've got an inexperienced doctor on the scene like that and there's an emergency thing going on, they generally just tell them to just take notes on, on what's going on. It's a way of giving them something to do and keeping them out of the way of the people who really know what needs done right now. Mm-hmm. And um, she was able to describe what he had previously doodled on the notepad that he was now taking notes on her resuscitation on. Now, Reverend Amara completely rejects this, right? He hears this and he thinks, I'm going to prove you wrong because this doesn't fit his dogma. This is not what's supposed to happen when somebody dies. Right. So he goes and he finds the med student and he looks at the page of doodles, you know, or the page of notes and it has some doodles on it. And the doodles match with what she described. He asked the student if he never interfaced with this patient at all. They hadn't. And he asked the patient if they ever interfaced with the student. She hadn't. You know, what we're left with now is we can say that Reverend Walu Amara is lying, and I will never fucking say that because he wasn't, right? Um, or we have a genuine mystery here, and that's where I land. There's a genuine mystery here. So th- th- where can one read about this? Is there – obviously, there must My book? Be. This is, <laughs> it's completely in your book? Oh, yeah. The story? The story. Is, yeah, it, the is story. it recorded anywhere else? Um, you know, it, it, intriguingly, um, Kubler-Ross herself – wrote about it, not, I don't think, in as great a detail as I ended up doing it through Amara, you know, because she had, so what happens is they have this event happen, they're really shaken by it, and, um, but they also are noticing that the patients who are reporting these experiences are changing. They are no longer afraid to die. I mean, you've got to imagine the anxiety that you would confront a terminal diagnosis with. These people start losing that anxiety and start wanting to talk to her about, you know what, I want to clean up my relationships before I go. They start talking about living hard in the time they have left rather mm-hmm. than trembling at the fact that they're going to pass on. It's, it's a huge dramatic effect. And that's when they decided to start taking notes. Like This whole idea that the near-death experience is merely wishful thinking is bullshit. You know, and it's at least bullshit in, in her experience and Amara's experience of it. They rejected it till they really couldn't reject it anymore because here they are researching what happens when you're terminally ill. And one of the things that was coming up uh, in dozens of cases were people who were losing their fear because of this event. And that's how they ended up justifying doing any research on it at all. So when she wrote her book, she had a lot of different stories to tell. I don't think she hit that story as hard as she should have. Wow. So. Um, the the near-death experience being created or uh, being facilitated, maybe is a better word, yeah. by, um, by a psychedelic experience, by the brain producing chemicals, is, um, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that there isn't something still going right. on. It might mean that that's a chemical gateway right. to whatever's going on, and that's how the, the brain can, releases this stuff and it interfaces with whatever the fuck it does when you have these trips. There's a researcher, are you familiar with, um, I remember their last name, it's like Carhartt Harris? Mm. No. Um, he did a study on um, m- well, mushrooms, the active ingredient in, mm-hmm. in mushrooms, um, with uh, uh, psilocybin. And he, um, he found that it seemed to suppress uh, brain activity. The, the brain actually seemed less active, particularly the parts of the brain responsible for uh, making connections and pa- relaying information from one spot to another. Yeah. What he thought was really interesting about that, and I would tend to agree with him, is you would think at moments of heightened experience and heightened perception 
that we would um, see an excitement in the brain, right? Um, greater activity. Well, here he was seeing uh, diminished activity, less activity. And it, it, calls, it calls me back anyway to the idea that a lot of what the brain does is filter our experience. A lot of our processing is unconscious. Information we're picking up from the environment all the time that doesn't rise into our awareness. Our brain's making the decision for us as to whether or not we need to be you know, worried about that little noise behind us or the creaking the chair is making or whatever, you know? We don't even register it necessarily consciously. And so the question becomes when you take this chemical, which I may or may not be interested in taking myself. I think you might be interested in it. <laughs> I, think I, I think I might be. Um, when you take this chemical, are you actually stopping the brain from filtering so much information? Are you actually accessing more of the raw data that's out there? Yeah, that's a that's a, an interesting question. Mm -hmm. The uh, the the thing about the uh, mushroom experience is uh, that the mushroom experience actually mirrors normal hu normal human ne neurochemistry. Part of uh, what makes up a mushroom is and and dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. the same stuff that your brain produces or your lungs and your liver. They know that the human body produces it, and it's been thought that. The uh, pineal gland. A lot of people get very angry if you're not very specific about this because it's just anecdotal evidence that the pineal gland, which is the third eye of Eastern mm -hmm. mysticism, produces this. Whatever produces it, whatever they find one day ultimately, they believe it's the pineal gland, but it's, you got to cut people's brains open within like a certain amount of time while they're dead and then extract it to see if it's wow. like, yeah, it would have I to be pretty intense. I did not know this. This is intense. I think to find, they're trying to find better ways to, uh, to measure. But the, the most important thing is it's unquestionably produced in the body. So the body is unquestionably producing this incredibly potent human neurotransmitter, which is part of the ingredients of mushrooms. Like psilocybin mm -hmm. mushroom is something like 4-phoxoroloxay-N-N-dimethyltryptamine. And I know I, d I fucked up the first part, the way you say it, but it's N-N-dimethyltryptamine it's with something tagged on. And my point is that people that take mushrooms have the exact same sort of feeling when it comes to, uh, without the near-death sort of... Um, connotation to it that they will die but they have the feeling like they have to clean up relationships they have the feeling like they want to live like right now with joy and happiness yeah. it's a very religious experience for a lot of people and a lot of scholars actually believe it's the origin of religious experience and you know about the death anxiety research going on there right now too right yes yeah, yeah i do it's yeah it's fantastic i mean this yeah. is the stuff if i do a fringology too which i intend to i i intend to look pretty deeply into deeply like as in you're going to take them yeah. You're going to have to. Yeah. I don't yeah. – look, I do immersion journalism. I mean, I debated, like, am I going to be coy or not? But, like, I do immersion journalism. Yeah, you know? But, like, but, that's what I do. I get into what I'm reporting on as much as I can. I think um, psychedelic experiences are very, very helpful. They, they can certainly send you off a path into the nutty land, but uh, I think they're very helpful. And they're probably part of what's made us humans in the first place. I mean, every single religion has some sort of substance that they – you know, they talk about whether it's mana, whether it's, you know, uh, soma. There's, there's like so many of them throughout, which are clearly some sort of psychedelic entheogen which they would take in ritual form and, and it helped them. I love the idea that it might have aided evolution in some yeah. way. Yeah. That's, yeah, the Terrence McKenna stoned ape theory is a fascinating, fascinating idea. And it's, you know, it's really one of those who the fuck knows things. 
it's tough to go back and try to figure out what the hell happened that turned us from you know some sort of uh, monkey type creature in ape of a lower ape to however it became a human being I, I just think I think in general we need to be willing to say who the fuck knows more often yeah. Yeah. Well, if you do mushrooms, you should say who the fuck knows all day. Because if you do it, you're just going to go, I did, how could I have known that that's there? How could you know? And that DMT is mushrooms times a million plus aliens. <laughs> so it's Im- impossible to even wrap a word around it. And all those things can, uh, they can change you just like a religious experience can change you. They can also freak you the fuck out and make you think you're haunted. Haunted, also, like afterward, you could blow, you could lose, you could blow a fuse. It's a lot of, possible for a lot of people. Just do too much. It's all about do the you, situation you put yourself in. Well, do you find? Do you find that? I mean, I would take it with so much excitement at this point, like just so much, like uh, let, you let's, would. Let's yeah. do it. But you're not crazy. You're a successful author. You seem yeah. like a nice guy. If you're a nutty person and you ingest that shit, if you're barely hanging on to sanity, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> What was dis- what um, what was the most shocking find for you in uh, the writing of this book? What what what's the one thing that set you back and really made you go, "Wow"? I, I might have started with the telepathy, but the other thing was meeting um, Ricky Sorrells in Stephenville, Texas. He was a uh, one of the witnesses to what became known in UFO circles as uh, the Stephenville Lights, this January eighth, I think, two thousand eight um, sighting. And uh, Sorrels, uh, so on January 8th, dozens of people, I like to say they had the misfortune of looking up because um, they faced a lot of heat after they reported what they saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was some kind of um, was a series of lights in the sky that moved in such, with such unity that it seemed to be one craft. It would have been very, very big. Um, at one point, it was actually trailed by F-16s that couldn't catch up to it. And um, these were the sorts of reports you were getting out of Stephenville at the time. And Ricky came forward to the newspaper and said that he had seen something many weeks before. Uh, I think it was shortly after Thanksgiving. And it was a solo daytime sighting. And it was the wildest story of all the stories anyone ever told me, right, in, in relation to the book. This was probably the wildest. And part of it had to do with, the, with Ricky himself. He didn't want to tell me the story. I had to go through an intermediary who talked him into ultimately speaking to me. As far as I'm aware, he has not done another interview since, and we're now looking at three and a half years since I spoke to him. He made not a dime on this. You know, If anything, he just faced a lot of ridicule uh, locally in Stephenville at first, so, except, of course, from the people who'd seen it or had a loved one see it. And um, so he has this sighting. He's out hunting. And this is one of the things that you know people use to sort of subtly undermine him, you know, in the same way that Monica Lewinsky was sort of framed for all of America by the fact that the dress that ended up with a semen stain came from the Gap, right? So we, <laughs> now we know where she shops. Like she's this low rent little girl, right? That's how people did her in. Um, with uh, with Ricky, one of the th- things people like to report, sort of demean him, is they would call him a deer hunter, right? He's a father, he's a machinist, he's had his job for 15, 20 years. You know, he's a lot more than a deer hunter, but he was out hunting deer when this happened. Why, and, did, they, why did they think that that's somehow another... Uh... I think it located him as a hick. You know what I mean? He's in Stephenville, Texas, which is literally a cow town. You were talking before about the cowboy with kerosene games. These are cowboys. These are people who are raising cattle, right? And um, the cliche of, of UFO sightings is that it's, it's quote, it's X who see them, right? Uh, one of the cliches of it. But anyway... 
Um, Ricky's out deer hunting, and he trips over a branch, and he doesn't fall down, but he has to sort of steady himself, and he glances up, and he notices overhead now something. He ended up saying it was 300 feet over his head. Um, he gauged this by the fact that there's a water tower in the community that is 300 feet high, and it seemed about the same height. He cannot see an edge to whatever it is that's floating above him, and it's not making any sound but it is hanging over the trees. And in it, there are this series of sort of inverted cones, which he intuitively suspected must be part of like the propulsion system. So the narrow part is up further into the craft, and then it widens as it, as it telescopes down, right? And so there's these series of inverted cones, and his first instinct, and, and I think people use this to sort of uh, position him too, his first instinct was to put his gun on it, put, put his sight on it, right? Just instinct. What the fuck is that? I've got to, you know, he points the gun at it, and then quickly, within a second or two, realizes, you know, I'm not going to shoot at this thing. Whatever it is, I'm not going to shoot at it. And so he, he lowers his gun, and, re, and, and I remember him telling me about this, that he just told himself, calm down. Remember as much of this as you can. Just look at it. Take it in. And then, boom. Uh, I forget exactly how long he was looking at it, but for a little while, it just shot off. And it went... So fast, he said, there's no word for this kind of speed. There's no word that can describe this kind of speed. It went from being blocking my entire field of vision because it was so big to just shooting up into the air um, like, like a lightning flash. And what was so convincing to you about his story? Well, here's what was, here was the convincing part. I mean, I'm used to sitting across from people and having, me, you know, and having them tell me all kinds of information. Um, and I have to, to look at various tales and just sort of see how I feel about them, right? Are they telling me the truth? Uh, Ricky just seemed utterly, completely truthful. He, what if was, he was getting crazy? nothing from this. That's the, the you know, obviously the um, skeptic's point of view, the cynic's going to come in and go, what if he was crazy? What if he was a good liar? You're basing your belief off this is the most shocking thing, well, an yeah. anecdotal story from a good liar. Well, I, like I said, I would have started with the telepathy, actually, because I could look at that research right. for myself and judge it. But, but, you know, but he freaked you out enough. Second, he freaked me out in this sense, because here's the thing, Joe. To me, he's demonstrably not crazy. He's fully functional. He's still got the same job. He's still got the same friends. Have you drunk? Did, got, did you go drinking with him? I actually met him for lunch and we did have a beer or two. Yeah. Unless and, he's hammered, you don't know that dude. And, <laughs> Unless you've seen him hammered, you don't know him. You he's don't got know a how. wife and kids and he's got a whole life. Yeah, you know? so does Ted, and he's running what's that What's his life. name? Ted, the fucking Ted uh, Haggard? The guy, uh, the, the church guy who smokes meth well, look, and here's, gets Look, that's hookers. what's so interesting to me about a story like that. What we're left with is the idea that what we have to say is, well, he must, he must be crazy. Something must be off right? uh -huh. with him. What was it people saw uh, several weeks later? I mean, one of the things that interests me about that story is they were very near a military base. Mm -hmm. and, and, again, this is all in the book, but one of the things that happened to him after he reported his sighting is he started getting calls from somebody who was identifying themselves as a member of the military who was advising him not to talk about this anymore and saying they wanted to meet with him. That was me. I was calling. <laughs> I was just trying to get a, get him to come on the podcast. It was Robert De Niro. Drones. It was De Niro. It was rehearsing De Niro. A new role. I was rehearsing my <laughs> role. Rehearsing a new role. Uh, yeah. You know, I wish he just pulled out his phone, took a picture of that. Didn't, it would have been didn't have one. Motherfucker you know? out there and, deer hunting without a phone. And actually, you know, a funny part about this. One of the witnesses, a uh, uh, constable. Um, that's what they call their sheriff there, um, Leroy Gayton, right? had a camera nearby when he had his sighting. It was in his car, and he was 10 feet from his car. And he had to make a choice. Do I take my eyes off this unbelievable sight 
and miss it? Or do I go grab the camera? And his choice was to stay rooted to the spot. Wow. And, and I think that that's another thing where I just sort of caution the skeptics. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what they saw in Stephenville is an unidentified flying object. And you, we end up with believers who hear that and say, we don't know what it was, therefore aliens. And that's right. ridiculous, right? right? But we also end up with skeptics who want to explain it in a way as flares. And you know what? That's equally freaking ridiculous. It wasn't I was flares. with you until you said freaking. And then I'm like, listen, man, we're grown adults here. Fucking. Thank you. Thank All right, you, I'm, I'm with Thank you. I'm Thank you. you. You hurt Brian. I mean, you know what, man? This is the first podcast I've been on where, like, swearing is just, like, cool. Really? Yeah. What every other one, it's always don't not. Don't swear. Maybe Matt does on Disinfo, and I didn't realize it, but the other ones, they're clean. You know, if you listen to them, they're clean. Oh, God. And up to our reporters, we fucking swear our asses off. Yeah, you know well, what I mean? Like, I swear all the fucking time. Well. But I'm used to in this setting. That'd be cool if UFOs were Bigfoots instead of ships. They're just flying Bigfoots. Flying Bigfoots. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, I just I used I brought to have my a Brian joke. Pad. I used to have a I used to have a joke that if there was going to be UFOs, why would they come in the form of a disc? If they can get here from another planet, they could make themselves look like a cloud. Yeah, right. Like, that's something we've already figured out how to do with, like, those Japanese jackets that show you an image of what's behind you, on you. Have you ever seen that? There are people Some who, new technology. There are people, actually, who do claim they come here as clouds. I'm sure Which they do. I find, yeah. Oh, well, I have a problem. I have a friend who's got a problem, rather. Uh, oh, I yeah. didn't know he was nutty. And uh, <laughs> we were in the improv one night, and he's like, check these out. And he starts showing me pictures of clouds. And I go, ah, oh, it's beautiful. Like, I don't, he's on his iPhone. <laughs> Show me pictures of clouds. He goes, you know, they're out there all the time. They're always, they're following me it's all the time. Clouds. I go, what is? I go, what exactly are you saying? He goes, these are flying saucers. He goes, these are from another planet. He goes, they're out there. They're following me all the time. And I realized, oh, I thought this dude was just nutty. I thought he was like a nutty comic. Yeah. No, no, he's got something. Something's some A is connected to B, and B is hanging down here well, loose and sparking. Uh, and we are I'd, smoking aliens, Joe. I totally uh, met people who are so invested in this idea that they're being um, uh, that they've been abducted or yeah that they're you know visited by aliens. I met a guy who claimed to have an implant in his leg, mm. and he didn't want it removed. Because the times that he's thought about it, he began to feel nauseous. And this made him think that the, you know, the aliens don't want him to have it removed. And just this whole trip into Lava Crazy land, land. Because there's a lump under his skin, right? And, right. And, and that could be glass that's been working its way up, you know what I mean, for decades. Right. Or who knows what the fuck it is, right? Like some kind of growth. And um, so I definitely met people like that. I mean, I think that's one of the things that impressed won't... me so much about Ricky, right, is he's, he didn't want to give the interview. He hasn't done another interview since. There's no profit in it for him. Mm -hmm. If anything, he just faced embarrassment over this. Well, I, I wish a story was enough for me, but I still have an open mind. I yeah. still have an open mind because even though I know that most people are full of shit, I still know that we can send a rover to Mars. If we can send a rover to Mars, if there was a – some sort of a civilization out there that wasn't just a thousand years advanced, but millions of years yeah. advanced. And perhaps they live in a solar system that doesn't get pelted by asteroids every couple hundred million yeah. years and wipes out everything on the planet. Yeah. And who knows what level of achievement they've had technologically. It's, well, it's absolutely possible. One of the guys I read about in the book, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, NASA astronaut, his yes. family in a hundred years, if you just sort of traces bloodline. They moved west in horse-drawn wagons, and then he was on the fucking moon a hundred years later. That that's technology advancing from horse-drawn wagons to the moon. And 
Um, well, he's a big UFO believer. He's, he's actually big, yeah. said that he saw some things when he was uh, in space. No, he well, no, 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 not in relation to UFOs at all. He's, he's maintains that he saw nothing in terms of UFOs when wow. he was in space. Edgar Mitchell, he had a why huge, do I think he that... does believe in UFOs? He says he's talked to members of the military since who've assured him that they're that UFOs are, should be identified as alien craft in some cases, right? That that we are being visited. But what happened in space was completely different. It was a, it was a religious or a spiritual, I'll say, spiritual experience. He had uh, an epiphany where he had the same sort of experience that people report in meditation when they um, hit this kind of bliss or uh, sometimes on psychedelics where it was like everything dropped away and he felt himself being at one with the entire universe, that everything was connected, everything was one thing. And it was a feeling that he had all the way back, uh, you know, over a period of a, a, a day or two. He would have this experience every, every uh, um, you know, uh, regularly feel this sense of wonder and this sense that he was, you know, he'd rejected his parents' religion. He'd gone completely down the science path and it completely altered his perspective and made him think that there's some way of uniting spirituality and science. He, he landed and started the Institute of Noetic Sciences to try and find some sort of connection between spiritual experiences and, um, you know, and, and some scientific basis for them. Yeah, he, what, what Edgar Mitchell's deal is with, uh, with um, uh, aliens, rather, is that he has talked to yeah. quite a few people and that were high-knowing uh, yeah. people uh, in Joint Chiefs of Staff, yeah. Intelligence Committees type characters, and they told them there was a UFO crash, and that there was an alien spacecraft at Roswell, and that um, uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Listening to him, uh, I'm reading rather this thing, and he had something to do with the Disclosure Project with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, who yeah. one day we, we would like to get him on this podcast as well, because uh, he's another very highly credible person, and uh, his disclosure project included a lot of very high-level former military people who talked about their experiences, and they think that it's high time that we start being honest about what these people in high levels of the military have already experienced, yeah. know about it, and the fact that there's there's probably a high level of probability that uh, we are consistently visited by some freaky dudes from another part of the world or another dimension yeah. or but they just can slip in and out like that and we don't really know what the fuck is going on well that whole the you know when one of the arguments you get from the skeptics is that our planet um is you know one among so many how would they find us what kind of propulsion system could possibly carry them here um and they're basing this all off on what we know right now with our technology and our understanding at the moment. But as you said, like, if you've got a civilization that's been around for thousands or potentially even a million or more years, who the fuck knows what they could have? That's yeah. a, it's, it's, a, it's a silly sort of argument to me because it's based so much on this idea that this is as advanced as we're ever going to get. Well, I always t point out to the fact that 200 years ago when you wanted to picture something, you had to draw it. Yeah. 
if you wanted to get around, you had to ride a fucking animal. Yeah. I mean, it was the dumbest time ever. Yeah. You had to draw. 200 years ago, you had to draw things to let anybody else know what they looked like. And we're still doing that in the courtroom. Yeah. What the fuck? What mm -hmm. the fuck? But it's really incredible if you stop and look at that, yeah. that we've gone from that in 200 years to making high-res videos with your cell phones, watching streaming videos, playing video games on a tablet. I mean, just that leap, no one saw coming yeah. before photographs. No one would have imagined that this tiny blip in human time of 200 years could have that much innovation. You know, the only time I really get sad about dying now is when I think about the shit I'm going to miss. <laughs> You know the advances that are coming up. Like I'd like to, I'd like to experience that. Stuff. Like privacy, you're gonna miss privacy. <laughs> that shit's out the window, son. Yeah, that's uh, that's the first thing that's gonna go. I think. I think there really will be no privacy in about a hundred years. In a hundred years, I think everyone's gonna know each. Other. Probably won't even that long. Won't Don't people that seem long. strangely disinterested in privacy now too? I mean, I can't get over how raw people are in terms of the information they share about themselves mm. uh, on Facebook. And you lose a phone, you lose your diary. You know, like you could get all your family photos or people's phone numbers, your past texts, your emails. I mean, that person's just gained a huge part of your privacy by just losing a phone. Yeah, if you don't have a fucking password on it, stupid. Most people don't. <laughs> well, that that's true. Um, if you're like a person who wants to like peer into someone's text messages, but I think um, that that access ultimately will one day just be universal. Everybody will be able to find out anything that anybody's doing. People are walking around with apps now that will automatically tweet where they are. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and I geotagging. Just that. Like that's it's great if you out. want to stalk them though. It's really yeah. stalking somebody and they're geotagging all over the fucking place. You can like narrow it down pretty good yeah people are weird man it's the, the the whole connection hasn't been figured out yet this whole connection between every human being on the planet through the internet really hasn't really no, been I, figured out i yet. thought you were going mystical with that for a second this whole connection well, there's that as well we're trying to figure that out too right well i think I, that I, like we, as we said i don't think that the human body in this form is done you know i think it's continuing to change and continuing to uh, I, I, a lot of people don't like to use the word evolve because you know real evolution involves mutation and adaptation to your natural surroundings and it might not just be that there might be there might be a lot of things going on a constant move towards improvement or you know? we keep on are losing senses are you familiar could with the be overview? that the overview overview effect you familiar with that? No, what's that? So that's what Edgar Mitchell experienced, right? And he, he's very adamant about this, and it seems to be true. Um, and NASA uh, allows that this happens now, that, that the people they send up into space um, are changed by the experience of seeing the Earth from space. It I'm has sure. a profound impact on them. They feel, and for Mitchell, it becomes a spiritual experience. Uh, for other people, it, it got them more involved in politics. They they recognize the how arbitrary the lines between countries are and the mm -hmm. lines we draw culturally. Um, but they they see just how fragile our little planet is hanging out there in space, and it changes them. And I think most of us would agree it's changing them uh, for the better. They end up coming home and doing um, sort of more altruistic uh, things with their lives, and. That, now we're going to have civilians being sent up into space, um, mostly wealthy civilians initially, because how much that ride's going to cost, right? From Bigelow Aerospace or Virgin, we're talking about one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I can't remember the price at this point, but I had researched it, and we're going to have general civilians getting shot up into space and having an experience of seeing the Earth from there, and it's going to begin to slowly change uh, the culture. 
uh, I would think, because if you look at how dramatically it changed the lives of all the people who've gone into space, it's going to change these people, too, to some degree. Yeah, Edgar Mitchell's take on it is very trippy, man. It's very trippy. When they when he was uh, in the uh, the mm -hmm. spacecraft mm -hmm. coming home, this is his word. Suddenly, I realized that the molecules in my body were created in an ancient generation of stars, and suddenly that became personal and visceral, yeah. not intellectual. And I had never had this experience. Yeah, it was I accompanied by bliss and ecstasy I had never experienced. So he's calling it it's calling it samadhi. I quote that in the, um, in the book actually because it's a it's a heavy quote and. Um, yeah, he felt literally it was like his flesh dropped away. His bones went away. Have you ever been to um, the Keck Observatory? No. The Keck Observatory in Hawaii is on the Big Island. And uh, there's uh, one island in Hawaii that's so big, you get so high on the Big Island that you go through the clouds. Come on, Hilo? Yeah, Big Hilo. Island? Yeah. yeah, well, Hilo is just a city. The, the yeah. Keck Observatory is, um, It's. I think it's on the... It's on the Mauna Loa volcano, which whatever one it is, the biggest mm -hmm. one, and it's at there's a there's a, like a visitor station that's down at like nine thousand plus feet, and then you go even higher. They have the uh, the telescopes there, but you get out of the car and you're through the clouds. Mm -hmm. And the way the Big Island is set up, they have these diffused lights mm -hmm. so that they don't create light pollution because of the observatory. So the fucking Milky Way was so stunning. It was so that to this day, all I think about when we talk about going on vacation is like we got to get back to that. Kek I got to see that again. I just got to look up and see that again because it really did feel like you were flying through an impossibly filled galaxy. Whereas like usually you see like a few stars like here and there, you know, up there with that high high altitude and the the really zero light pollution and clear skies it was amazing i studied lucid dreaming in hilo on the big island oh. and one of the things i would do is uh, at night before i go to bed i would uh lay out in the grass and just stare straight up because in, i'm in philly right yeah and you just don't get stars like that in philadelphia uh, yeah. because there were there were really no lights we were at this little retreat type center and and um it just it set the scene real well to go upstairs and try and have a lucid dream yeah, I would imagine it would set the scene for freaking yourself out. It's I, I've never gotten over that image. Just seeing, I mean, it was only a couple of hours of just staring at the sky, but I, I couldn't believe how beautiful it looked. I gotta imagine it's probably a hundred times more beautiful when you're in space orbiting the Earth. You know, have you seen those photos that they take when they're up there? It's like, oh my God, like you're orbiting the fucking planet. You're above it, looking down at just the circular nature of it all, and like. It's something to consider there, too, that's really interesting, that, uh, fascinating about the overview effect. You can show people these pictures, and they don't have the reaction that you have from, from being there. Oh, of course. You know? Yeah. Images uh, never capture the, the real emotion of the moment. You know, the connection of the moment when you're actually in space has got to be a real mindfuck. It's like the, the connection of camping as opposed to actual camping. You know, most people go, why the fuck are you going camping? What are you going to sleep in the woods, stupid? Don't you have a house? Yeah. But once you do it and you go, oh, I get it. This is crazy. Like, you're out here in nature. Like, it is a totally different feeling. My, my wife is going to be really glad that you're saying this because she wants me desperately to go tent camping with her. And I and I, my feeling always, you know, let's just get a cabin, honey. We'll walk out into the woods at night. You know what I mean? Tell her you want to go deer hunting. Then you can camp out. <laughs> make Make... 
<laughs> make a uh, make a some sort of a agreement. We're back to De Niro. One shot. Yeah, I'm, uh, De Niro's ridiculous. You got to shoot him twice sometimes. They go down. <laughs> you got to execute him. Trust me. Um. Yeah. Camp. The, the the thing that's weird about camping is that when you're away from like electricity and a house and all that shit for long enough you kind of like get this like real humble feeling like yeah. oh okay i get this like we're just like another animal yeah. we've just figured out some way to separate ourselves so we can do our work right. we separate ourselves in our houses and in there we create these computers and electrically <laughs> hook things together and all, as long as we separate ourselves from the nature because right. if we're out there in the nature you might get eaten or you gotta go find Bit some food yeah right. shit can go wrong yeah put that purell in your hands bitch and go back to work so you get in your house and you're you know you hide from the connection with the outside world but when you're camping it's inescapable it's a weird feeling when you're out there for, I did it recently, five days with no cell phones and no electricity, no no heat, no nothing. And we had to start a fire if we want to stay warm. And it was in Montana. It was freezing cold. But doing that, you, you really have a different sort of feeling and appreciation for, for what nature actually is. Nature is, it's like we're disconnected from one of the fucking coolest things ever for a human to experience. Yeah. We're completely disconnected from it. There's a lot of people who live their whole lives in cities and in suburbs, and they drive back and forth from work, and they never get out there in the woods. I'll never forget a guy in uh, college who went on this big, long tirade, and I thought he might be mentally unbalanced because he went on this big, long fucking tirade. But I'm like, I'm so sick. It was in philosophy class, actually, too. I'm so sick of people talking about the outdoors and how the outdoors are so great. The outdoors suck. You get bit by bugs. You don't, you don't know what the fuck's going on. You don't know what's going to happen next. You get rained on. You're wet. What the fuck's great about that? That was his take on the entire outdoors. He well, that's spent his entire life like in a, in in a mall, I guess. That's the classic <laughs> cynics approach, isn't it? Isn't it the classic cynics approach? You're like f the hipster, like fucking everything sucks, man. Why the fuck? You? That's the, that is our our spoiled society's creation. I have to tell the you, that's, that's one of the biggest um, pushbacks I've gotten on the from from that sort of crowd on the book. That yeah. like the whole idea that I was going to go study lucid dreaming and learn to meditate and and do all these things. You know, like why? Right? Why? Like why would you put that kind of effort? It was it's sort of just sort of like. I, I, I don't know. I guess they feel so great in their skinny jeans that the idea of doing something to improve themselves further, you know what I mean, just seems like an admission of defeat, Have right, because they're supposed to be so cool right yeah, now. Yeah, well, that is, that is the thing. Like, why bother? What are you doing out there with your, with your stupid psychic bullshit? Yeah. Yeah. It's not real. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Look at my jeans. What if they have skinny jeans and they're sagging? Have you seen that? That makes you fucking violent, doesn't it? Oh, it makes me want to throttle those little fucks. Oh, if you're so skinny that your skinny jeans are sagging, there's a problem. Well, they put the ciggy, they put them down low on purpose. Like, that's a move, yeah. to have your skinny jeans kind of saggy. Male cleave a little. Yeah, a little bit. It's like you're just letting them know. <laughs> Silly fucks. Yeah, that detachment thing is really disturbing. It's, it's such a weak, fake sort of uh, complacency. It's just, they're just terrified. So they're just pretending to don't give a fuck about anything. I don't care about anything. There's I'm a hipster. A, well, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of that terrified, I think is the operative word. I think, yeah. it, and, and, I, and it was, it's funny, I, I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly, but it was Martin Sheen, who, who uh, and that guy went through the shit, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. look at the whole Apocalypse Now filming sure. and that whole story, the whole arc he went through. Um, the basic fact we need to understand about life is that it's terrifying. Yeah. You know, we are, we are, 
cauldrons of anxiety. We have a part of our brain, the amygdala, that whenever we're confronted by ambiguous information is immediately going to be like, check for danger, check mm -hmm. for danger. Yeah. And it, it sort of prohibits us from, you know, learning, growing, trying to find out uh, new things if we give into that. Yeah, I mean, we are, we're animals, and we have instincts to stay alive, and those instincts yeah. are going to get fired up left and right all around, yeah. especially if you're in a city and just constantly surrounded by people and packed into a place. And I think your senses, they, they adapt, your feelings and intuition sort of adapt to that environment. That's why it really made sense when you were talking about people who are hunters and people who were inner city people. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in, involved in a real, you have to, in an inner city situation, that's very primal. And you have to learn to slow it down. You have to learn to, because there's so much happening around you in a way, you kind of have to learn to slow it down to, to mm. see what, what's important here. What do I really need to have my eye on? Because there's so many different things that could distract you. Potentially and, fuck you up. Yeah. yeah. What, um, what other information or what other uh, pieces of evidence about aliens have ever led you to believe conclusively one way or another that that there is something out there. I don't, you know, I, that's an, another one where I, I conclusively believe that UFOs are unidentified flying objects, right? right. And, and there are times when we just need to kind of, there are people who want to honor sort of like materialist science and there are people who want to honor some sort of dogmatic religion. I want to honor that like gap in our knowledge to some degree, right? And, and just acknowledge that it's there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're uh, working through. You know, we, we need more information, more data, not less. And um, so... So the UFO question, I mean, have we been visited? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, even that Stephenville sighting, I didn't get a chance to get into this, but that Stephenville sighting, there's a military base nearby. Mm -hmm. This guy claimed that he was harassed for uh, weeks afterward by a member of the military. There's a story in the book about somebody showing up on his property and in the middle of the night making his dogs bark and just staring into his door and clearly wearing camo gear. And this was during the same period when he was getting these threatening phone calls from a, from a guy who was identifying himself as a member of the military. So is it possible that, um, you know, w people are encountering at times some sort of advanced military technology? It, to me, no coincidence that people started reporting triangle-shaped UFOs shortly before the stealth bomber was right. uh, ultimately revealed. Yeah. Um, so sometimes that's the explanation. Uh, but, you know, for me, simply the vastness of the universe, its age, um, the idea that we, 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 the chances that we're the only, only uh, planet that's evolved life like this seem so small that surely somebody out there has developed the kind of technology it would take to find us and get here. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thinking that, that really opens me up. You know, to, to the possibility. The numbers are just too crazy. If it's 100 billion stars mm -hmm. with who knows how many planets, more than, you know, more than one per, per star, you know, yeah. some of our binary systems, we, we don't know. That's just this galaxy. I mean, it's a joke. Yeah. And there are enough of these cases where, you know, like Greer's people, the military people who come forward and say that something happened or whatever. Yeah. And enough of these people are, are credible and... And, and it's left in that unidentified category that you start to think, well, you know, maybe at some point, some of these. But right? so many people are full of shit, and so yeah. many people have told lies that if you have any thoughts in your head that you're going to be able to tell people that you believe in UFOs and not have them ridicule you, mm -hmm. you know, it's good fucking luck. 
Good luck, like being a serious person and being taken seriously. If we had Obama, if Obama was on TV and he started talking about UFOs and his experience and what he believes they yeah. are, and that he believes that we're being visited by intelligent beings from some other dimension yeah. or planet, he immediately is going to get people will haul him off to crazy They'll town. Take in their him minds. away. Yeah. Look what happened to Dennis Kucinich. Yeah, when he told that story, uh, or you know, sort of was dragged through that story during a debate. What was his story again? Um, was it? What year did he run? He ran in uh, recently. Two thousand four. Did he? Yeah. Two thousand four. Yeah, yeah. He um he had written, or I'm sorry, Shirley MacLaine, who I guess is like a great aunt or something to him, or a godmother. I can't remember the relationship. She had written a red book. flag. Well, she'd in written the a family. book. She'd written a book in which she claimed that he had seen uh, a UFO, and Tim Russert asked him about it during a debate, and people immediately. And it, this is, again, the language was UFO, not alien craft, right, but a right. UFO. People immediately burst into laughter. And you can hear it you know, on the video. I write about this in the book, too. Um, people immediately start laughing. And he starts saying, well, look, you know, UFO, it's unidentified. And people are still sort of, now you hear people kind of gasping. Because instead of rejecting it out of hand, he's, he's sort of trying to, to stick up for this. Those are the press people that you root for to get killed by the aliens that were in that Mars Attacks movie. <laughs> they come down with the ray guns, ack, 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 just start blasting them and killing them. How undignified to be killed by cartoonish aliens. That would be the would perfect be the, end. It's the way to go. Yeah, that, movie was, that movie was <laughs> fucking awesome. That was, that's one of my favorite all-time alien movies, Mars Attacks. It's much more likely how it's going to go down, too. These people, that, these knuckleheads that think that the alien's going to come save us. We're not saving chimps, you know. We're not going to the fucking the Congo and giving them laptops, you know. They're, right. they're not. They're not going to save us. <laughs> Why would they save us? Get the fuck out of here, Edgar Mitchell. He knows. He knows something. He doesn't want to tell us. This guy, um, your your guy, um, did he have uh, drawings? Did he did he ever uh, Sorrels? Yeah. Did he like try to? Uh, well, you show know what's funny. He he tried to take pictures later of other. You know, another sighting he said he had using a cell phone camera. And he had is, another sighting. Yeah. And this same is the town? same town, but at night. And this is 2008. And it's a shitty fucking picture. Right? What does it look like? And Does actually, it's a it little bit anywhere? of video, actually, too. I think he captured video. Um, he stopped showing it because uh, he realized it was embarrassingly it's bad. It's probably YouTube right? comments. They got I mean, rude. Well, here's the, here's the issue. Like, how good a picture is uh, a cell phone camera going to take of a light in the sky? Not right. very fucking yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, think right. about how good of a picture is it take of the moon. You know, it looks right. like a tiny little dot. It's right. impossible to see with an iPhone. So that's another one of the sort of like uh, misleading, you know, the red herrings thrown out there by the skeptics. But we're all walking around with camera phones now. Yes, and right. those camera phones suck for the most part. They'd have a very hard time taking a picture of a light in a dark field, right? Like, did a, a you sky. look up Bigfoot? Did I did not. No Bigfoot research. I decided I was not going there. <laughs> Maybe in book two, after you take mushrooms, I, then you commune uh, with Bigfoot. Yeah, Big, Bigfoot to me was not on the radar. Here's the thing. I was drawn to the idea that um, the, the, where the whole title of Fringology came from is these are subjects we push to the fringe. But if you look at like near-death experiences, ghosts, um, UFOs, uh, they speak to the big existential questions, right, that, that really plague us, the ones we don't have answers to. What happens when we die? Are we alone in the universe? You know, what, what's it mean to be human? These sorts of questions. Bigfoot doesn't really 
doesn't really get into that into that field. He's not in a, You know, he's he's not something that's going to make me question. Um, uh, you know, the idea that there might be some undiscovered ape. Is, it does not affect what happens when I die or, or whether or not we're alone in the universe. Right? You say Unless this. he got here on a fucking spaceship. See, you say this, then, but my friend called me up the other day. I swear to God, someone actually had a conversation with me about this the other day on the phone. He goes, do you think that Bigfoot could be like an interdimensional being? It comes up. People do throw that out there, but I didn't. I decided to stay away. And I said, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that. I don't think that at all. Even after you said it, I refuse to think it, you fuck. Who was that? I'm not telling you. Was it, it wasn't me, just for no, the record. It wasn't you. It was not Brian Redman for the record. <laughs> Brian Redman could give a fuck about Bigfoot or UFOs. Yeah. He's a silly boy, but he's not a silly boy when it comes to like ghosts and shit right. like that. Dude, my like, mom and my sister and my stepdad all say that their house is haunted. Really? I've stayed at that house. I've screamed like ghosts are jerks, and I, that was the edited version. But like, I tried everything to like see or hear this ghost that they all swear upon. Yeah, maybe just, they're haunted. Yeah. Maybe their minds and their fucking dreams are haunted. <laughs> That's right. Their life is haunted. Maybe that. Maybe their life sucks a fat one, so they manufacture ghosts to scare the shit out of them in the middle of the night. Yeah. They and hear maybe, it all the time, too. I, yeah. I went out with a ghost hunter for about, uh, not dated, but went, went along with them <laughs> uh, for about nine months or a year. What? And on. That seems like a long time. That's part of the research for the book. Nine months for a year? How often did you do it? Once, once a month, probably we went out, I and then know. when he had like a quote hot case, I would go. There was one case I went out on like three, four nights in a couple week time span. Um, and look, there were times when the people didn't want to think anything was going on in their house and uh, brought him in, hopefully to debunk it. But there were a lot of times that people brought him in, hoping that they had a ghost, excited about it, showing pictures of dust motes in the air and saying, look at these orbs. What are the orbs? kind of thing. Please explain to me what the orbs are. Usually they're dust motes, yeah, right? They're, they're, it's just dust and stuff floating in the, uh, in the air near the camera lens. And so the light flashes off of that uh, dust and creates this round image that's semi-transparent. And, you need to and talk to Eddie know. Bravo because Eddie Bravo believes you manifest them with positive thinking. Oh. I mean, you know, it's and fun. You hold your hands out like he's like got them gathered in his hands. Here's What's a test. going on there? Here's a test for Eddie Bravo. Get get into a room as still as possible. Take some snaps, right? And and uh, test it. You know, be really really still in that room. See if the amount of orbs seems to decrease uh, the longer he stays there. And I think what he'll find, because I mean, I, I know some people who who did this, is that they go the fuck away because you stop stirring up the air. You've now been really still for a while and you're, and you're taking pictures because, generally speaking, I mean, that's... Okay, hard. what about when you get them in outdoor shots? You know, there's... Bugs. Bugs. I and got stuff you, bitch. Bugs, dust. <laughs> I got you, bitch. <laughs> outdoor orbs. Remember those aliens that, that, that just happened to be the bugs? You know. Oh well, that's uh, that was a video artifact from um, filming um, or those um, those fucking cones. You know those rods, the Roswell rods. You yeah. know that whole thing. Yeah. That's hilarious. I I bought that documentary. I was like, what are those yeah. things? Yeah. This is crazy. I was like, maybe there's some war in p- part of the world where there's a bug that just flies really fast, looks really weird. I didn't even think it was that crazy. Right. But then they they're thinking they're you know travelers from another planet. Sure. That's why they're so they're fast. always there. Yeah, but it turns out that it's just and Monster Quest broke this. It took Monster Quest <laughs> to debunk you, a show that never gets. They never haven't debunked shit. 
Except the rods. But the rods, they got you, bitch. Man. It's just a video artifact of certain cameras that when they put like a super high-speed camera on it, it didn't happen. They got the exact same area photographed. They lit a fire and bugs would like fly around the fire. And when the bugs would fly around the fire on one camera, they would come out like these rods because the camera couldn't Man. compete with it. Or couldn't rather uh, pick up the image when it was moving too fast, too close to it. It didn't know what it was focusing on the front and the back. You know, mm, uh, mm, digital mm. imagery is kind of funky. But on the high-speed camera, they got it loud and clear. And it's like, <laughs> here it is, stupid. They, this fucking asshole dedicated, like, decades of his life to selling these DVDs and telling everybody there's fucking rods flying around the air. Yeah, I, I was trying to look for things that would help me answer the big questions, if only for myself. I got tired of, like, you know, I, I don't want to listen to some right-wing, dogmatic, religious person tell me how it is. I got tired of listening to Richard Dawkins telling me that I'm just meat. And I just thought, you know what, if, if, if it's knowable, if it's observable that there's more to me than that, I should be able to find a way to experience this directly for myself and learn about it directly for myself. So I started looking into meditation and lucid dreaming and trying to find some way of experiencing myself in a sense disconnected from the meat, right? My and problem with Dawkins is he doesn't seem happy. I love it's the It's not idea. a great advertisement for it. It's right? a terrible advertisement. He seems like a bitter old cunt. Yeah. Like, I love the idea that he's standing up for science and mm. he's standing up against right. e e religious ideology and brainwashing and he's but he's doing it in such an arrogant sort of aggressive way that it it makes you go like you're kind of a bad spokesperson for the thing but I I'm sure from the scientific community like the encouragement is like so strong and profound and almost hero like that it sort of encourages him to be this aggressive force of reason I'm sure there's enough people like that that he gets the encouragement he needs but um uh, Peter Higgs uh the guy who who first started us off looking for the Higgs boson mm -hmm. he recently even just came oh, out yeah. and said that Dawkins is a fundamentalist well he said he's embarrassing yeah. he said that Dawkins is uh his behavior against uh, or about religion is embarrassing yeah and he called him a fundamentalist he yeah. said he's a, an atheist fundamentalist and that's sort of the worst insult yeah. I mean that you can level at an atheist because they are so, you know, they're reacting to fundamentalism in their, in their view. But, you know, if you adopt a point of view to that degree with that passion, if it walks like a fundamentalist and talks like a fundamentalist and quacks like a fundamentalist, that's what it is. I guarantee you that if you could get Richard Dawkins to take place in at least one mushroom trip, if not several, I think one to find out what the fuck it is and then re reset and revisit, go back in and sort of analyze what the fuck is happening. I bet he will have a completely different opinion Real interesting as to thing. the possibilities. Did you ever follow the God Helmet? That's that thing that they put on you and, and yeah. stimulated certain parts of your brain. S stimulates the temporal lobe with electromagnetic energy. Makes religious experiences. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of other kinds of experiences, too. I mean, mm -hmm. but, but the thing is, the atheist community, that sort of fundamentalist, materialist community, came out and said this is an explanation for God and religious experience. But people have all sorts of, of strange experiences when they put that helmet on. But guess who didn't? Richard fucking Dawkins. And when they screened him before he put it on, because he, he wanted to you know take part in this, um, when they screened him and, and put him through sort of the questionnaire they put him through, and I, and, and I have not seen it, and so I'm not going to be able to describe this in great detail, but Persinger you know, related this much of it to me. Um, when they screened him, he, his temporal lobe was really, really inactive, right? It's, 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 not, it's not of normal. Uh, a normally active sort of temporal lobe, which is what they were trying to stimulate. So when he didn't have an experience, Persinger 
um, just sort of dismissed it as saying, well, you know, this guy isn't built like the rest of us. And it's, and it's an intriguing thing to think that is, is that part of, the, of what created his worldview, right, his atheistic worldview. And um, is that the case, or is it just he rejects religion so strong that, that the area of his brain yes. responsible for religion just gets that's shut a, down? Totally, that's a great point because that's a, that's the other possibility, right? It could be if that's the yeah. s- the, the the source of all like right. unrealistic hope uh, is well, in that area. You know what? Not even unrealistic hope, right? Maybe reality. The the, the degree to which. Um, you know, we feel, you know, if you pray or if you meditate and you feel like you're contacting something sort of outside yourself, mm-hmm. this is the part of the brain that processes that information. Well, if you're never using that part of the brain, if you're never stimulating it, right, right um, it, it will become less active. That's neuroplasticity in action. That's just how it works. That totally makes sense. If you completely reject any idea of woo-woo whatsoever, the yeah. woo-woo part of your brain. Yeah. You know, there's a big issue that I have with people that will say um, that an experience whether it's an experience like Edgar Mitchell had or whether it's a psychedelic experience, they'll, they'll say, especially in terms of psychedelic experience, they'll say that it's not real, mm-hmm. like it, you, you had an hallucination. But the same effect, it has the same effect, rather, on you yeah. as a real experience. Yeah. Like, even if it's a hallucination, let's, let's, let's yeah. define a hallucination as you're seeing something that's not there. Even mm-hmm. if it's it's that from that you benefit greatly mm-hmm. and you have a real thing is going on in your imagination or wherever right. it is you really are receiving information you really are looking at yourself and the world in a totally different way it's actually happening so this event this experience whatever it is i mean we want to car- compartmentalize it because you're you're taking in some sort of a substance alien to the body that tricks the body into having this state and achieving this state and having this experience but it's still an experience that you actually really have can can we segue into lucid dreaming because yeah, i i'd heard you mention yes. that you were interested in it and i really maybe the most gratifying thing that's happened to me in writing the book is whenever I do a public appearance or a podcast with a big enough audience, I end up getting notes from people afterward that they had a lucid dream at either you know after the interview or after they went and, and then read the book or whatever it is. And I love turning people on to it. Because Are you a, a big do – you, do you do this on a regular basis? I, I do it on a regular basis. Before we had our – my wife and I just had fraternal twin boys, and um, they're almost six months old. So sleep has been hard to come by at home. Right. Uh, but it's – I'm so proud of this, right? Before, before they came along, I was having a lucid dream every two or three weeks without even trying. I mean just spontaneously because I'd trained at it long enough, hard enough that I was having them every two or three weeks. Um, since they were born, I actually recently, because they're starting to sleep a little bit now, I actually had a couple just in the last couple of weeks, and it's over three weeks. I had two, and it's like, oh, great, it's coming back online. This function of Steve Volk is returning now that he's getting proper rest, you know, and, wow. um, and it's, it, it's pretty terrific. And, and one of the great things about it is that it changes your waking life as well as your dreaming life. I mean, it, it honestly wouldn't be worth the effort if you were only doing it to experience a change in your consciousness when you're dreaming. So lucid dreaming, for those that don't know, is the act of being aware you're dreaming while you're dreaming and then choosing accordingly, right? So think of it this way. One great way of introducing people to the idea is that, yeah, we're going to talk about the pills. Take it four more albums right now. <laughs> I'm serious. 
one of the ways of introducing people to lucid dreaming to understand what it really is, and, and usually I'm asking this of like a, a crowd at a, a book reading or something, but I'll ask you guys here. Have any of you ever woken yourself up from a nightmare? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. You were this close to having a lucid dreaming, having a lucid dream, because you were aware you were dreaming while you were dreaming. You were like, shit, this is a nightmare, right? I'm going to wake myself up. And you chose to wake yourself up. But the fact is, since whatever was chasing you or whatever was happening that made it qualify as a nightmare had no external reality, you could have just walked away from it in your dream. You could have, because the laws of physics don't apply, flown away from it. You could have gone up to it and said, yo, what's up? Why are you chasing me? You just right? completely control your dream. Well, no. You control you within your dream. And for some people, they find that they can begin to control other aspects of it and make things happen. I had one that was totally like I could stop time and rewind the tape and, and start it again. I had a dream that I was in a, a car accident and I got lucid. And um, I've actually already, I was really outing myself here, I, I always had a phobia about driving. I do it, I've never enjoyed it, right? But lucid dreaming really helped me um, push past that. Um, and one of the ways was that I was having this recurring nightmare. This is not one that's in the book, this is a bonus baby. Um, there's a different nightmare I dealt with in the book. Um, I had this recurring dream that I would find myself outside the car, but the car was, but I was driving the car. So there was like a me watching and then a me driving. And I would wreck because I felt myself not in control of the car. Right. And so I finally had a lucid dream. I got, got lucid and realized, oh, I'm in this freaking recurring dream. And I kept crashing the car from this distance. And I would just rewind it and, and, and try and get better control of it. But I kept trying to get better control of it from a distance. And so finally, I just kind of zapped myself into the, the body that was driving the car, the me that was actually driving the car. It's like, well, shit, I just need to drive the car. <laughs> I, I need to actually be behind the wheel, not in this disconnected way, but in this present way. I realized what the dream had been telling me all along. Now, how you did know? You, you, you purposely got involved in the idea of lucid dreaming for the book. Yeah. So how did you go about manifesting a lucid dream? Okay, so um, I started researching the main guy who has uh, studied lucid dreaming and proved it was real and, and all this sort of thing, Dr. Stephen LaBerge. Started reading his book and planning to go to Hawaii uh, for his 10-day workshop. And I How convenient he has a 10-day workshop in Hawaii. It, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, I, I it's highly a, recommend it. It's a vacation. It. It's an incredible vacation. And, um, and it's a vacation that tapped me into a, like a whole new wing of my life. And so um, it's the act of being aware you're dreaming while you're dreaming and choosing accordingly. And the, I realized once I read that that I had woken myself up from nightmares for years. And so it's like, okay, I have an opportunity to do something different here. So there's different ways you can train for it. One of them is you take the time to remember, uh, for instance, a recurring dream or the dream you had last night, right? I really recommend doing it with a recurring dream. You remember it, particularly a nightmare, because those are so vivid. You remember it. It's like a meditation. You, you, you meditate on it. And you choose the point in the dream where you wish you had become lucid, where you wish you had gained control. And so the, the dream in the book that I had worked with was a dream where this creepy fucking dude shows up outside my house, and he's peeking in through the window, and eventually I end up getting angry that he's trying to terrorize me, and I open the door and we would, we would fight, we would clash. And I would wake up literally at times punching the air, just because I am going after this guy. So I decided to meditate on that dream and look for the spot within that dream where I could uh, uh, get lucid. And 
gosh, I'm not sure how long I, at, at this point, I mean, it's in the book, but I, it was probably a couple of weeks of, of work where maybe 10 minutes one day, five minutes the next, maybe the 15 minutes before I fell asleep one night. And finally the dream happened. And when the guy showed up in, in uh, my window, I, I realized, shit, this is... I'm in the this dream. is the dream. I'm dreaming. And, and to feel yourself, like to feel this, you, you don't realize until you've had a lucid dream, but this, you've, there's a sense of disconnect between you and the, per, and the you and the dream, right? Until you lucid dream and suddenly find yourself in this dream body, you're, you're no longer watching it like a movie. You are in it. And it's like the matrix. It just, it, you get to be Neo. Suddenly, as I said before, the laws of physics play no part. And most people find when they really begin, when they first have a lucid dream, there's this exhilarating sort of feeling, flying and dream sex. Like those are the first things that people usually yeah, do. Yeah, that's all anybody wants to do, fly and fuck. Yeah. They Makes bang sense. some honey or they take off, man. It just lets you know that what is, what is best in life. Conan was right. <laughs> he was right. Everybody running around, oh, it's most important to have friends. Get the fuck out of here. What do you do when you're in your dream? Do you make some friends? No. You fuck and you fly. I, I, I have found that when I... We're doomed. When I, don't, <laughs> when I don't have a plan in a lucid dream, I spontaneously, the first thing I think to do... Because like, you can plan activities. Mm -hmm. You can say, I want to have a conversation with so-and-so. I've had a, a fair amount of deaths in my family. My mom's dead. Uh, my oldest brother is dead. A brother-in-law, who was very much like a brother to me, was in the family since I was 12. We shared a room together. Uh, he's dead. I had two friends die of cancer um, in, okay. right around the time the, the book I was working on the book. And um, I wanted to see my mother again. So I had a lucid dream in which you know, I remembered that that's what I wanted. And I called out into the dream, show me my mother. Wow. Show, me, you know, show me my brother. Show me my brother-in-law. And suddenly I was, in a, I was in kind of like a – when the dream started, I was in kind of like a mall – and I got lucid because Leonardo DiCaprio showed up and shoved me, and I realized that's fucking weird. Leonardo DiCaprio just oh, I'm in a dream, right? That's how that's how I gained lucidity, and um, and I remembered what it was that I wanted to be there for. And so when I called out, "Show me my mother," it was like the mall disappeared, and there I was just in this black space, and then my mom was there. And this is years after she died. I got to hug her, and it felt. Every bit as real as really doing it. I could feel her warm, soft skin. I could feel the bones under the skin. I could smell her shampoo that she used on her wow. hair. That shit I had not even thought of. You know what I mean? Like wow. a, that were memories of hugging my mother. Um, this is a beautiful, beautiful experience. And I, I called for my brother and my brother-in-law. They were there. We ended up doing like kind of a group hug. It so was really what, awesome. what do you think is going on when you're having a lucid dream? I think you're dreaming. Right. right? But I, what is that? What's... What is allowing you to piece together this artificial reality? You know, they're not entirely, um, well, what's allowing you to dream? or what's it, Here's the thing. People think of being asleep as, as losing consciousness. Um, the fact is what you lose is awareness. You're conscious because you're able to report what happened afterward, or at least most of us you know, have some memory of, mm -hmm. of our dreams. Well, you're essentially um, entering into another dimension. So, so dreaming is what happens in the absence of external input. Right. We're not getting any external input anymore. This is just our mind. Right. Uh, Which, can we call that another dimension? When you the, the dimension of imagination, whatever the fuck that is, however it exists in, whatever 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 you know theater it plays out in, mm -hmm. there's it's going on somewhere. I mean, whether it's just a, a bunch of shit firing inside your head, it's not really real. 
at least inside your head, there's a whole fake world. Like, what is that? That's that's a well, that's, that's a the trip. mystery of consciousness, yeah. right? That's the mystery of consciousness. Where did, where does this experience really come from? How could the neurons, this three pound gelatinous mass, uh, secreting and emitting chemicals and electrical firings, create this? Yeah. And in the the truth of this is that we don't fucking know, and and yet we're inundated with people telling us what what we should consider important and and telling us at this point too just drilling us with this kind of materialist paradigm that that we are meat computers mm. that we have no free will all this sort of to me you know just sort of um, i don't buy that the no free will thing and i think if if they don't know how to explain it how we have no free how we have free will it's because we don't know yet enough about the brain and and consciousness um, but and I love Sam Harris. Sam Harris really turned me on to meditation through reading his book, um, and I consider him like sort of among the new atheists. He is a breed apart. I love the interview you did with him because he admits that the paranormal's been unfairly stigmatized and, and all this sort of stuff. But he's one of the guys out there trumpeting that we have no free will, and I I'm really happy for the opportunity to to talk about this because you know, and he says rightly that uh, dogmatic religion uh, has an unhealthy effect on, on the psyche, and it certainly does for a lot of people, right? It has a healthy effect on people in, in society because um, they're, you know, they're fearful and they, they're judgmental of other people and all, all this sort of stuff. But when you tell people they have no free will, they are more likely to cheat. Um, and, and this has been researched, right? When you expose people to the idea that they have no free will and then you give them an opportunity to cheat at something, they'll do it. And if you tell people, um, uh, what was the other one? Oh, they did this a- This is games, anything? Or are you talking uh, about romantic It was a test. Cheating. It was an academic test. And they cheated they on it. They would cheat on an academic test because they were told they have no free will. So they were, they were more likely to the cheat. They were exposed to the idea that they most likely had no free will. Wow. And the control group who was not, who was ex- not exposed to that information didn't cheat as much as the people who, anywhere near as much as the people who um, had been exposed to the idea that we have no free will. And when you say um, that Sam Harris believes that we have no free will, we should kind of – it's a very comprehensive oh, yeah. sort of a take on things sure. that has to do with not just natural selection but the, 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 the human organism itself and all the reward systems that are put in place to motivate behavior. It's uh, It's not like – he believes that there's an architect that's guiding your life no, on a no, certain no, no. path. I just want to let yeah. everybody else know. Sure. You know, when you say you have no free will, sure. like to, a lot of people, people equate might, that with a religious idea. The, exactly, right. a fundamental idea. And that's he's he's more he's looking at it completely the opposite from a scientific perspective. The idea is that you're motivated constantly by a series of factors that are beyond your control. Theoretically, if this is a completely just you know sort of a naturalistic material universe. If we could measure all the variables from the Big Bang till now, we could predict everything you're going to do your entire life, every choice you're going to make, because it's all the result of the conditions that that led up to it. Yeah, I had a crazy idea once of taking a computer that's so powerful that you could input in all of the data of everything in the state that it exists right now in Mm -hmm. the world, everything that exists in the world Mm -hmm. in the state that it exists right now. And from that, you could extrapolate and go back through time and get a full detailed depiction of every single event that took place. It sounds completely ridiculous 
right now, but I don't think that's ridiculous in the future. I think we're going to be able to get data from, like, whoever thought, like, a million years ago, you'd be able to get ice samples, and that that was going to tell you climate change, you know, from thousands and thousands of years. I mean, that's how we know what the fuck was going on 6,000 years ago. You drill a gigantic chunk of ice, and you go, well, shit was different here, and look at it a foot higher, it's different here. Yeah. Um, can I, if I can take this yeah. back to lucid dreaming? Yeah, please. So another way of – and this is the part that really gets beneficial for your daily life, the part that was most powerful for me in that sense. Um, the other way you can train yourself to have a lucid dream, first of all, you have to ask yourself the question, how do you know when you're awake or when you're dreaming? Right. How, how do you know? What's different? Mm-hmm. And what uh, LaBerge found and what everybody else subsequently has found is that there are, there's this kind of state test you can do to see which state you're in. And the idea is to start doing it when you're awake. Do it all the time. It should probably come from some cue in the environment. If something odd happens where you just think, oh, that's strange, lock into that, right? And here's how you would do a state test. Um, print changes in a dream. If you look at it, something printed, and then look away, and then look back, um, sometimes you have to do it a couple times, it, it will change. And the reason is because that print doesn't have any external reality. It's something that your mind right. is producing uh, for you. So um, I had a print at one point. Uh, I, uh, usually I've just been able to figure out, I just kind of lock into it and get, okay, this is a dream. Like Leonardo DiCaprio pushed me. Like, what are the what if he did that? push but, you? <laughs> and it was out in real life, and all of a sudden you thought you were in a dream, so you started fucking random people. And so they're like, sex Leo. Steve Volk, what the fuck, man? I thought I was lucid dreaming. Well, this is why this is why you might want to do a state test as well, right? Yes. And so you check print, and you see if the print changed. And I had print change into just um, like symbols at one point. A oh, book wow. just changed into a series of incomprehensible symbols. Um, digital clocks uh, will really malfunction and uh, machinery in general will malfunction because you know you flick that light switch over there and it's actually connected to the light bulbs um, but in a dream it's not fucking connected to anything right? Right, so right, you, right. you flick the light switch and maybe the light goes on the first time and then when you turn it off it doesn't go off because it's not actually dream. connected to anything yeah I've had that happen in dreams before where I realized it was lucid because I couldn't turn light switches on and off I've had that and so I realized oh this is a lucid dream like this is a dream and did you do anything with that? Um, you know, when I started taking nootropics, I had much more success with lucid dreaming. I found that my lucid dreams before were were so fragile. They were like a bubble, like a mm-hmm. child's bubble, mm-hmm. you know, when they blow mm-hmm. oh, with those things. But then once I started taking nootropics, they were like a fucking volleyball. Yeah. You know, it was like hard. You can kick it around. Like it was, it was different. You couldn't pop it. I can't wait to take my on it. Those. Yeah, it's any nootropics. You know, I, I obviously we sell on it products because they're they're the best that we can possibly sell. We sell the best shit we can sell. But if you're not into it for whatever reason, if you're skeptical, there's a lot of ingredients. The 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 ingredients are available online. Take any of those, whether in conjunction or individually. There's a lot of different companies that have them. Uh, I've always talked about Neuro One, which is um, Bill Romanowski stuff. It's all there's it's all fascinating stuff. And you will have an increase in brain function. So, so when you're doing a state test when you're, when you're awake, right, one of the other things you do is you look for the behavior, uh, strange behavior in the people that are around you. And That's my whole life, though. Yeah. Well, you're a comedian. I'm in a dream. And you'll, you'll, find, you'll find that initially when you first start trying to do state tests when you're awake, maybe the first day it feels really awkward mm-hmm. um, because now you're in, I'm having a conversation with you but I'm also looking at the print on your shirt I'm looking down and then up and down and then up to see that it stays the same 
but after you get used to doing that, and for me, it only took a day, day and a half, you know, something like that, of doing a state test maybe eight or ten times a day, I found that my state tests were actually making me more aware and more mindful of everything that was going on around me all the time. And it, and it seemed to have that effect of slowing my life down, making me more considerate of, of what's happening, making me more present to the person that I'm with. And suddenly, I, and I realized, right, like when Sam or somebody says we have no free will, you know, a lot of times we are just on autopilot. We're just reacting. How often do you eat a meal and don't really taste it because you were busy and you were thinking about something else? Mm-hmm. Um, when I started practicing lucid dreaming, it was really, it's a mindfulness practice. I mean, it harkens back to the Buddhist practice of mindfulness. You're just more aware of what's going on all the time. I um, saw a movie that gave me a great technique. I forget what it was. I think it was Through the Rabbit Hole or one of those What the Bleep movies, which are just overrun with fuckery. There's a lot of fuckery in those movies. However, even amongst fuckery, you can sometimes get some good things. Get something you can use. And one of them is in one of the, the videos, a guy said, when you come to a doorway, knock on the door and say, knock on the side of the door and say, am I dreaming? And do that during your waking hours. Mm-hmm. Do that and go, am I dreaming? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I did it. I walked up to a door and I said, am I dreaming? And there was nothing there. I went, oh shit, I'm fucking dreaming. Fucking dreaming. And then I went into the lucid right. dream. But it was amazing how quickly it shifted over from just this random sleep and dream state to just that one action of am I dreaming? Holy fuck, I am dreaming. And then this, yeah. the conscious mind completely arose inside of the dream. Yeah. It, it, I didn't maintain it for very long. I've still never been able to maintain it for very long. I don't, it, get, it, I don't get late at all um, in my look, dreams. It helps I, to have I a plan. I get no pussy in my dreams. It, it helps to have a plan. So... So when you're thinking about, you will. You'll get there. They think so? Yeah, yeah you'll get there. I've never had. <laughs> I have I mean, fucking I faith. You will get there. If anybody will, it's you. Maybe it, I jerk off too much. But, but if you have a plan before you go to sleep, if you've mentally rehearsed, um, just take 30 seconds to do it two or three times a day. If I have a lucid dream, this is what I want to do. You remember, like I did with my mom. I remembered. Because at first I was like, oh, shit, okay, I'm in this mall. And, you know, like, what am I going to do? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I can't, you know, tonight I had a mission. I, I want to see my mother. Right. And so if you, if you train for that, you'll, you will be able to... Um, what if you have nefarious intentions? Go for it. There's really? No, you know, no law, well, go for it, but maybe not. Because here's what's interesting, right? So there's no laws, right? Societal laws, you know, in, in a dream. Right. But you still have to deal with yourself in the morning. Uh, and I know that sounds fucking funny, but, like, I had a chance in one of my very, very early lucid dreams to bang this dream hottie. It was great. It, it, this is the first one lucid dream I had in a while. You tell me that you feel guilty when you woke up in the morning. I didn't even do it. Because here's, here's what happened. I ended up um, – so I, I climb up into this building, and I, I gained lucidity. And um, th- there was this woman in the room, and I said to her – and this happens a lot of times with dream characters – I said, I'm having a lucid dream. I'm dreaming. She says, no, you're not. And they will, dream characters will invariably tell you, if you say to them, this is not a dream, they will invariably say to you, no, it's not. And this is one of the weirdest, coolest parts of, of lucid dreaming, because even LeBurge, right, eminent sort of scientist, just kind of shrugs his shoulders. Like somehow the dream world wants to maintain its, its status as, as real for you. Right, so the dream characters will say so this is lying. not a dream. Yeah, and so I said to her, "No, I'll prove it to you. It's a dream." And so I, 
I turned, and it was like, you know, you were talking before about when you have a subjective experience, you still had the experience, right? Mm -hmm. So I know totally what it's like to be fucking X-Man because I said, I'm going to prove it to you. And I turned, and there were these big double doors, like, you know, 30 feet away or something. And I just went like this with a wave of my hand. And the doors, I said, I'm going to close these doors from here. And I went like this with my hand, and the doors slammed shut. And I was like, holy shit, it worked. Because it was like one of my first lucid dreams. Wow. It was awesome. And then I turned to her, and I was like, so now I'm going to have you, right? And so I grabbed her, and I Whoa. went to kiss her. And then I remembered, because at that point, I was engaged to my wife, right? And I was like, oh, but, you know, I'm engaged. And it felt so real. Again, her skin, her, the smell of her, her, it just, I was This story really, just got really gay. I know, you gotta fuck that ghost pussy. What yeah, the man, doing, get man? that ghost pussy. Sorry, stuff. fellas. Three buttholes. You get I am dream, who I am. You're getting dream pussy. You're, I am who I am. Well, you know what? Maybe now... Even I'm, in your dreams, I want you to be faithful. <laughs> Can you do that? Wait, let me tell you something about my wife. I gotta, I gotta get my wife's back on this, because when I told her about it later, she's like, you could have done it. Oh, <laughs> did you immediately just fucking take some choline and go right back in? Well, I'll just say this. I've been doing uh, other lucid dreaming since. So lots of oh, okay, dreams. good, good, but, good cover. But that, been experiencing, but, experimenting with dark clouds. Wait, though, there's something to think about here because one of the guys in the, in the workshop who attended the workshop before brought, brought this up um, in Hawaii. He said, you know, he went to have sex with a dream character and the dream character refused him. And his first thought, and, and this is just awful, right, was to commit dream rape, right? Whoa. And so he was going to force himself on this dream character. And as he started to do it, he realized this is not something he wanted. Because, again, Joe, remember, it feels real. Afterward, right, right. it feels as real as anything you've ever done. I mean, you sound like you're having these very fragile dreams to begin with. That happens. I mean, sometimes it takes a while to get it built up so that, so that your lucid dreams feel at least is real, right? Is this reality? Do you want to carry around the memory of raping somebody? No. Did I want to carry around the memory of cheating on my wife? No. Well, he's got and, shitty and dreams because in my dream, I'm a pimp. I just get pussy left and right. <laughs> yeah. and it's all over. I'm beating it off with a stick. My problem is I wake up right before I put it in. I get alone. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Huh? What? I'm awake? Fuck! Damn it. That's bad news. I mean, I have shot loads in my sleep, so I'm sure it's happened. I just haven't been lucid. I never get lucid sex. But the girls are always nice to me. No one's ever angry at me, you know? And I never have, like, a lucid dream. And these bitches are like, you never get this, buddy. Like, this is my dream. Why are you so mean to me in my dream? That's never happened, luckily. But, yeah, I mean, I've never wanted to do anything creepy in my dreams either. Right. I've never wanted to do anything evil. Right. But I have fought crime. Really? I, have fought, I fought dragons and shit in my dream. In yeah. a lucid dream? Or oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Fuck yeah. My lucid dreams are really boring. I'm like getting shit done, like errands, and like I remember really? just yeah, like it's pretty cool. Like knowing, I've done a few lucid dreams before. It's usually when I I'm, I always feel it's like the level of your sleep because hey, it always should, seems to happen. Early. We should. You're right. It's definitely the level of your sleep. If you're fucking exhausted, you're not right. gonna really put out a good one. But we should do an experiment with the show. Well, we should uh, all of us try. We should try to have like you know have like someone who's going to come on again like Ari, mm -hmm. someone all of us try to have a lucid dream. I've yeah. just force it and then see see what kind of progress we can make. Because you're having one, them, but you're not like trying to have. I them, use right? a dreidel. Number one, I'm flattered that you already know I won't be back. What? <laughs> I said number one, I'm already flattered that you know I won't be back. No, like, no, that's not what I meant. I mean, someone who's here all the time, I like know, Ari. I'm fucking. If with you me. live in Philadelphia, sir. I'm if getting you in the spirit of this. You can come back in the spirit of this. That's not the spirit. 
to thoughts with you a little bit? (laughs) Brian, uh, real quick, honestly, so you've been in a lucid dream and have chosen to just carry out errands? He just gets raped. (laughs) Everywhere he goes outside, he gets tackled and raped by big giant women that look like they're in R. Crumb comic books. You've never (laughs) thought... Big giant thighs and giant asses, and they just hold him down and they just... Or women like those chicks from Boston and the fighter? Shove his face into their big meaty snatch, big fucking roast beef snatch. Big gigantic rump roast, big bullet wound snatch, and they just shove it in his face, and then <laughs> so he doesn't leave the house much in his dreams, right? Isn't that what you told me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I fuck. I, I have sex with a lot of ex-girlfriends in my dreams. I notice, like, I'll be like, okay, next, come in, come on in the room. In, Wouldn't in, that be beautiful? In lucid? Just, yeah, yeah. That'd be beautiful if you could just call it up. Like, if you had like a girl that like you just we're not compatible with, but goddamn, you guys had some awesome sex. Like, couldn't you just like? Like, uh, honestly, you can though. Yeah, That's the thing. I mean, 100%. if you train it this, if you train it this long enough, I mean, I was able to, you know, quote manifest my mom, right? I mean, you right. could manifest Britney Spears or whoever it might be. Britney Spears, Lindsay. not now. Bitch, don't you know? Mila. Um, I think uh, I, I think that that idea of being able to do that is fascinating, and it's even more fascinating how few people pursue it. Well, you know, yeah, this is one of the sad parts of Stephen LaBerge's story is that he discovered this thing that you can really use um, to defeat nightmares. If you're one of those people who has night terrors where you wake up with like sleep, you know, suffer from sleep paralysis or you have recurring nightmares or anxiety uh, around an event, right? You know, you're going to be doing public speaking or something and maybe that's not your bag. You can rehearse. Right in mm-hmm. in in the dream. So he's discovered, and and look, it's enriched my daily life. I mean, today I was doing, I was just trying to train it again because now I'm finally getting some sleep. The boys are letting me sleep, right? And and so I'm starting to do state tests again and stuff. And and I just look, man, I, it just locks it locked me into my environment in in such a cool way. I could suddenly really pick out the sound of the leaves blowing in the wind, and the you know, I was uh, on. That's uh, really interesting. It was it was fantastic. And do you detail how to do that in this? Or I do. How someone can do it yep. if they want to follow it. Yep, yep. And I use the I use the rehearsing a dream scenario, and I use the state tests. I give both those methods. And don't forget the door knock, folks, because that shit worked for me. Just say, "Am I in a dream?" Well, that's well, well you that's have to do it. that during the day or the, 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 the daytime also, though, don't you? Yeah, you just do that during the day. That would be so hilarious to see you walking around, <laughs> fucking knocking on doors, and every time you do it, you go, "Am I dreaming?" <laughs> okay, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. I just go if I have a dreidel, then I'm dreaming. There's no reason I would <laughs> that's have a, a dreidel. Good, that's a good one as well. And also, dreidels pop up or Chinese people, right? Well, Didn't you say Asians appear the, in your dreams? There's actually been really good research that. Um, what we dream tends to be stuff we've been thinking about a lot in the last 24 to 48 hours. So the whole principle of state testing and asking that question, is this a dream, right? Um, or, you know, the way I always present, am I awake or am I dreaming? Um, the whole point of that is that when you do that regularly, you're more likely to have that thought then arise while you are fucking dreaming. Yes. When you're really dreaming. Yeah. And um, it, it works. Yeah, that was the idea of the, the habit of knocking on the door, yeah. that you'll, they'll transfer that habit to your dreams. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea of dreams are so fucking fascinating. There's so little we know about what the fuck is really happening and what kind of weird imaginary world you're creating inside your mind. And I love when people try to say, well, this means that, yeah. you know, the dragon represents, right. you know, like, you don't know what the fuck is talking. I am in the Lord of the Rings and I'm fighting a dragon. It doesn't represent shit. Yeah. It represents I like watching wacky movies. Right. So I got high and watched Game of Thrones. Took five alpha brains, went to sleep, and had a fucking dragon war. Sometimes the cigar really is just a fucking cigar. Yes. But there are, there are definitely times when you can say to yourself, 
okay, why this content, right? Mm -hmm. Why these images? Why these sounds? Is there, is there some message for me here? Some, mm. Something my subconscious is gnawing on that I should be aware of and, and work with in some way. Well, I'm sure there's a, a lot of things that occur in a dream are things that you're fixated on and things that are constantly in your mind and that your imagination will turn them into a dragon or a right. witch or a demon or, or you know, right. a vampire, right. you know, or, or a disease. You know, right. there's, there's all sorts of things that you're terrified of in real life that you fixate on and much like the knocking on the door, they just follow you yep. into your dreams. Yep. And it, this gives you a chance to deal with them. I mean, if you approach something that's in a nightmare um, more like uh, a friend, and that's weird to say, but uh, LaBerge did this with uh, this really ugly ogre that showed up in one of his dreams um, that he would always recoil from. Um, he decided to, uh, well, confront it's the wrong word because it sounds adversarial, but he decided to approach it in a spirit of you know, curiosity and compassion and like, figure out what's going on with it. And I can't remember what exactly he said to it, but he ended up, he accepted it, right? He, he, he didn't recoil from it. And it actually, um, if I remember correctly, it became a part of him, right? He the, the ogre became a part yeah, of him? Yeah, it just kind of blended into him. And he, and he, and he took that as a sign of, eh, 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 Mr. Comedian, take this on for size, right? Dreams are about integration. There are uh -huh. things we deny about ourselves and about our experience. And they come up in your dream because this is something you need to deal with and need to look at. And mm -hmm. so if you do accept it in that way, you end up feeling more empowered because instead of rejecting this thing, you're, you're dealing with it, with it in a dream. It. Yeah. Well, I always thought that was fascinating when people give the very good advice of sleep on it. You know, if yeah. you have, a, if you, something's bothering you, sleep on it. Yeah. Because th that, that, there is something that happens to you during the dream state where you have a better perspective in the morning. I don't know what it is, but I, I am a big proponent in sleeping on it. I'm also a big proponent in jerking off before you make any decisions. <laughs> that's also very important. It's I have to tell important. you, man, I, I had an experience writing the book with a lucid dream where you can't imagine the anxiety I had before writing it. It was my first book. Um, I've been writing for years and years and years, but like, you know, 5,000 word stories, maybe a 7,000 word story. Now I'm going to have this to write. Is a fucking legit book in hardcover form. I, I'm going to have to write 90,000 words in 10 weeks. And it was right before I was supposed to go uh, get married. And so there was no fucking with that deadline, right? I was going to have to write this thing um, and have a full, good working draft of it done in a 10 week period. And I was having all sorts of anxiety over it. And I ended up uh, approaching a dream character in um, uh, a store, and I said to them, I, I need help. And she's like, what do you need help with? And I said, well, I'm, I'm writing a book. And she said to me with, like, the utmost sort of compassion and sincerity, she said, the book is already written. And I had from that the feeling of you know there's just not well you you work on product, creative projects all the time there's nothing like having finished and knowing it's it's right and it's good mm -hmm. and i had that feeling just sort of flood into me when when she said this so real and so vividly that when i woke up i started thinking about all the vagaries of how time works and all this sort of stuff and that you know in a sense the book is already written i'm just going to live through the period of writing it and it, and it just totally reframed the experience of writing that book for me. And in a strange sort of way, I mean, I, to say that I wrote the book in an altered state is, is a big, powerful statement. In a way, I did. I never had less anxiety about writing anything in my life. I would wake up 7, 7.30 in the morning. I was completely on leave from work. 
I would get a cup of coffee, I'd be writing within 15 minutes of waking up. Instead of producing what my goal was, which is around 1,500 words a day, I was regularly writing 3,000, 5,000, 8,000. There were days I wrote over 10,000 words in one day. I would finish at 2.30 or 3. I would eclipse my fucking goal by miles. I would finish at 2.30 or 3. I would go out and buy fresh groceries and a bottle of wine. And when my wife would get home, I'd be this joyful fucker standing there making her this like uh, delicious dinner and totally enjoying my life, like rocking balls, right? It was, it was awesome. And, um, and it was lucid dreaming that did that. And it was that experience of having that anxiety taken away from me in this really vivid, uh, real way. Having, that, that was really fascinating. It was awesome. I wonder if we could get people uh, in on this. I wonder if we could get people to just start trying to lucid dream. Um, are there, is, is there resources online besides your book where you recommend people uh, checking out? Uh, you can go to Stephen LaBerge's website. Which How do you say his name? LaBerge, uh, L-A-B-E-R-G-E. And he has a, a website, Stephen LaBerge. Yeah, just search. I can't remember what the address is for it. Um, his book is is really phenomenal. Um, it's it's very scientific, um, but it's for the, you know, anybody can read it and pick it up. So, I mean, they're, they're, uh, it's become the Bible for what they, they call themselves oneironauts. Um for people who lucid dream regularly. Um, I, I want to say something about my book, by the way. Yes. It is right now. They, they, um, it's backlisted, which means they're, no long, they're not completely ignoring it, but it's been out for a couple of years, so they're not pushing it. And once they, one of the things they do with a backlisted book is they'll price it down to $1.99 uh, at, on Kindle for a couple of weeks and jack up the sales figures, right? And so I asked them in advance of the show, could you please leave it? Because they just did it recently. I was like, please leave it at $1.99 for the show. And they said, no. But I woke up this morning, and Brian, I guess, has got it up now. It's still $1.99. Please, I don't... So you they know, fucked up. What's it supposed they, to be? They fucked up, but good. Because my, my it's $9.99 normally. But my feeling is, let's just get it into people's hands. And right. so right now, let's all engage in an act of piracy. HarperCollins fucked up. Get out there and get the book for a buck ninety nine. I love it, and I hope they look. I hope they change their minds. It's possible that the person I talked to ended up running up the flagpole and decided, you know what, we should leave it at this price. I don't really know, but I know what they told me was an unequivocal no. But here it is, still a dollar ninety nine. But he's so found it also it. for eleven bucks. That's right? the hardcover. Oh, the hardcover. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's great, man. Dollar ninety nine is very reasonable, and I I I get all my books through. Um, uh, I have one of those. I have a Kindle, and I have a. a um, I love it. The Nook to the Barnes it. and Noble version of it. Any book, any magazine, I, I, I suddenly feel the impulse to to read. It's there Bing. on my tablet. Yeah. It's instantly. Real. Yeah, it's yeah. Inc- we live in strange times, man. The ability yeah. to get those, you get a book like that off of Wi Fi, and yeah. some of them even have three G connections. It's like ooh, it's wacky fucking times for publishing. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, a lot of people are getting their books that way now, right? What is your? Do you know what the percentage of ebook to regular book is I, I, that you're selling? I know this book is outselling um, from the time it was released. It's way more electronic, and and more than the general industry. So when this first came out a year and a half, two years ago, or whatever it is, it was. I think they told me the figure was like 50, low fifty percent higher for electronic books. This book was over sixty percent electronic books and i'm not sure what that sense. says but well it's the, the fringe subjects are really supported by the internet yeah. by internet websites and yeah. all, all the nuttiness um w- there's a bent spoon on the cover can people bend spoons with their brain uh, you know i wanted to get to the bottom of that I, and, and as an immersion journalist i actually was waking up in the morning 
and trying to bend a fucking spoon, right? Really? With my head. And I did it, I think, three days in a row where um, I think the first day I wanted to go 15 minutes and I just started feeling so silly after seven or eight that I stopped. And then on day two, you know, I think I did three or four minutes. And on day three, I'm like staring at the spoon for like 45 seconds. And I was like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. Maybe if you're like <laughs> one of those monks on a mountain, dude. Yeah. You have to stare at that spoon for days and days well, and days. You know, and it I've, goes like this. Just imperceptibly. I've had some people I respect tell me they think it's real and that, you know, I couldn't do it because I couldn't do it because I wasn't taking it. People you didn't respect. Didn't really believe in it. How, why do you respect them? Because they can kick your ass? <laughs> That's or, one reason to respect somebody. That's one they, reason to respect They have somebody. a lot of money. Like, no, you know what? There were some parapsychologists I met along the way who haven't stuck their neck out on this publicly um, because it's, it's really fraught, man. I mean, the, the guy who popularized it, Uri Geller, is, um, you know, in my First Amendment protected opinion, because he's very litigious, um, a magician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. so, and so it's a very controversial subject. This is one of the places that James Randi kind of made his bones, the skeptic and a debunker, right. was, was going after Uri Geller. And so uh, a lot of people just don't want to be publicly linked to this uh, subject, even if they believe in it. Right. Um, and so I met some people like that who have never publicly spoken about it, um, but they're, you know, they're doing credible stuff in the world, and they, um, they claim that they were able to do it. Or, they, you know, they were at a, quote, spoon-bending party. There's uh, some people who throw spoon-bending the parties. fuck out of here. I'm going to bend my spoon right up your ass. Ain't no spoon-bending party. <laughs> You know what? That's a really all those strange guys, party, i got to say. All those guys would pass on, on the million-dollar prize that he's offering? Uh, you know, I, the million-dollar prize is... Randy's million-dollar prize is bullshit? I, I'm not into it. I mean, I, I think that it... You're not into in his, a, in his that, idea? Well, the idea the of the prize? The people who are doing credible parapsychology don't fit into the way the prize works. So, like, people like Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrake, and mm-hmm. I remember when Sam was on here, he talked about Rupert and said that there's something very fishy about not going after the million. Right. There's really not, because, and, 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 and I love Sam, but I, I just think that maybe he, again, we all come at this with a worldview, and he's probably a little more predisposed to be on the materialist side of things, right? And, and um, but, but, um, Sheldrake or, or Dean Radin or any of these guys, Daryl Bem, they're going to construct a study that requires dozens, if not a uh, hundred subjects that will take um, an hour and a half for their each individual session conducted over weeks, months, or a year to get like this Gansfeld effect at 32% versus 25%, mm-hmm. right, that we started this whole thing with. Right. And James Randi is going to needs an event that will take place with a very small sample size where you'll get like 10 bites at the apple basically, 10 chances to get something or 12 in an afternoon or an evening. It, it, it is apples to oranges. It is completely inapplicable to what credible parapsychologists are doing. So the idea that Rupert Sheldrake hasn't taken it up is not only not very fishy, it tells you that he has some, some fucking sense. So in order to get Randy's money, you have to do something like make the Empire State Building disappear. You have to do something. Yeah, yeah, and you have to do it in a small – the big thing is you have to do it in a small sample size. I mean statistical significance is generated by sheer repetition, right? And so when you're – And Randy requires a small sample size to prove – He doesn't specifically require a small sample size, but whenever you look at any of the studies they're doing, they're doing doing stuff that takes – Again, you know, an afternoon or an evening, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of a, a public event. Right. And I, and I, again, I mean, there are some parapsychologists 
Um, I think his name is Dick Bierman, who said he approached him and couldn't work anything out. Supert Ertel uh, approached him and couldn't work anything out. Daryl Bem uh, apparently thought about it and, and realized that with the, within these parameters, the kind of research he's doing, the kind of effect size he's trying to, to, to get, the time it would take him to generate that, just doesn't really fit into what they're doing over there. Well, it seems to me that that statistical 32% is, that's a real number. That 7% difference is legit, right? I mean, it seems like that's that's something that has to kind of be looked at, no? It it should be. I I would agree with you. It should be. But I think that this sort of the professionals, and and look, there are professional skeptics like French and Wiseman, the guys I mentioned before, who will engage in a a reasonable conversation about this. But Mm -hmm. then there are skeptics uh, to me, like the JRAF, the James Rennie Educational Foundation, those guys who are, are, are just kind of rejecting it out of hand. But there's really something, there is something to, to look at here. There's something to wonder about. And I find that, you know, a, 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 number one, a more fucking accurate way of looking at it, and, which is great, right? And it's also a far more interesting world. Yeah, you know? it's fascinating. <laughs> that, the, just that, that's, that tiny percentage bump is really fascinating. Because it really, you know, makes you go, uh, maybe it is an emerging skill, or maybe it is an emerging sense, or, as you said before, Thing. a declining one, because yeah. we, don't, we don't use it in the, the natural world anymore. Yeah, and don't cultivate it at all. And, and look, you know, it's, it's a figure, when you look at that, like the Gansfeld effect, 32 versus 25, you know, or whatever an individual study might show, right? Um, one of the things that's powerful about that figure, and, and it speaks to one of the things the skeptics do well, Right, is they warn you away from those people who really are con artists. I mean, right. the idea of the super psychic, John Edward, Sylvia Brown, there is threadbare uh, evidence for that. It's not something that I would put my name on and mm-hmm. reputation on as saying there's something we really need to look at this, right? But the Gansfeld effect, there's so many studies, dozens and dozens of studies that, that go into these, uh, what they call these meta-analyses when they crunch all the numbers together, that I will put my name on and say, you know, we should fucking look at that. Right. And, and so it's not that the skeptics are, are all wrong or all wet, right? But they paint with far too broad a brush. And I think at the end of the day, my, my own guess and their motivation is the fact that that mechanism would be unexplained, the fact that that mechanism would suggest there is more to us than meat is not something they want to acknowledge. Because when you really look at these people, when you look at Randy, he's also a dogmatic atheist. The idea that we're more than meat starts to introduce the idea of a soul. Right, something that will transcend this bodily death, and the idea that we have to, uh, you know, worry about that to some degree, and govern our behavior based on what we're going to become later, or what we're going to have to deal with later, potentially. And so I think that they're kind of keeping the barn door shut, right? They've taken on this tack in life um, that they are going to hold this shit down. The fringe ideas, the unexplained, anything, occult, what have you, yeah. all those things are just. Yeah. Not to be, not to be yeah. given any any power, but it's kind of unscientific to block out anything, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the <laughs> the idea of science is to observe everything, yes. even very infrequent but possibly real events. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're a fucking scientist, Steve Volk. You're a scientist, goddammit. And the book is uh, Fringeology, and it sounds fucking awesome, man. Um, I'm, I'm going to get into this, dude. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks for getting the book, and thanks for telling them to keep it at $1.99, which you can I, get it right now on I, Amazon.com. I just want to say one more thing. I just can say this. All the interviews I've done now, and I've done a ton of them, this was the biggest honor, and the reason is because I've been listening to this podcast for the last couple of years now, like year and a half or more. And I find, and it's so it's funny, I'm not sure how many guests you've had on in this 
position where this show has become part of the way I reinforce my own good habits. Like I find <laughs> that it, it just keeps me motivated. It keeps me focused on – I think of this podcast ultimately, secretly, it's kind of a cloak and dagger enterprise to get people to live their best possible life. And that's the function it performs for me. And so being on your show, totally fucking jacked to be here. So oh, well, thank, thank you, brother. Much. I really appreciate yeah. that, man. That means the world to me. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on here to, uh, to share your thoughts and have a cool conversation with us and enhance the podcast. Yeah. Become a part of podcast history, you dirty fucks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> we got a lot going on this week. We got uh, tomorrow, we got bringing on Adam Hunter. We got Duncan Trussell this week. We got Ari Shafir. And this Friday, I am at the Ice House on, uh, in the big room on, at 8.30 and 10.30, two shows uh, this Friday at the Ice House. And there's also a show going on in the little room at the same time, right? We got a, you don't have a show going on over there? Okay. Well, Brian will be on my show, too, unless you got something to do. You got some, are you doing something? Mm, yeah. um, next week, Steve Rinello's coming back on the podcast, uh, as well as uh, Jimmy Smith. We moved Jimmy to uh, next week. Jimmy, who is the, uh, he does what I do for Bellator. Very cool guy. We're going to have some, uh, so all you people going, why don't you talk more MMA? Stop all this queer ghost shit. <laughs> Those people will be fulfilled next Tuesday. Um, so tomorrow is Adam Hunter. And uh, if you want to follow Steve Volk on Twitter, it's Steve, V-O-L-K. And uh, the book is Fringeology. And it is available, as we said, right now on Amazon.com, you fuckheads. And uh, <laughs> I, I say that with all love. Thank you to um, <clears throat> thank you to Kerosene Games for uh, sponsoring the podcast. Go pick up Blade Slinger. It is available right now for $2.99. How do you go wrong there? You don't, you fucks. Okay? You don't. Go to onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code name Rogan and save 10% off any and all supplements. All right, anything more to say to the nice kids before we get out of here, Brian? Uh. We're going to be at. I'm going to be at AVN with uh, Sam Tripoli, uh, and it's about to be announced uh, later. Oh, today. you're not supposed to tell anybody. You're yeah. supposed. Did Wait. you just fucking? You just blew your own press press release. Mm -hmm. How dare you? That's he, how much he loves you, folks. He violated all of his confidentiality agreements and just went nutty. Well, I've been and, talking about doing a show in Vegas for last week or but month. You were or supposed to tell that. people about this yeah, one. I didn't tell you what it is yet. You just fucking. You just threw a goddamn Sa monkey. Sam Tripoli is about to announce it on tonight's Naughty Show. I think. So. Oh, well, there you go, you, you, you fucking beautiful humans. We'll see you guys uh, tomorrow, maybe. I don't know what you're doing. I mean, you don't have to listen every time. I'm not needy or nothing. All right, see ya. Love ya. Love the fuck out of all of ya.